Hey everybody, what's going on? This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Pow Pow Media. Pow Pow Media is the premier video and production video marketing resource in the DFW area. They're going to create you some original video content for TV, film, internet distribution, whatever you need. If you're a small business, you need to check these guys out because the e-commerce videos that they make are extremely valuable and second to none in the area. They've been in business since 2000. They've created over 12,000 multimedia projects. They can do drone footage, uh, any kind of promo for an event or any kind of small business or a band, anything like that. I had one made. It's extremely professionally done. They have a really quick turnaround. It looks phenomenal. I love it, and I'll be using them again for sure. So check them out at powpowmedia.com and tell them I sent you. Let's go ahead and get started. And we are live. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Slightly Chewed Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Watson. With me on this episode, my great friend, longtime friend, Mr. Michael Lee Klimmer. How's it going, man? I'm doing good, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. I'm really uh, happy to have you on. Uh, you're one of the people in, in the scene that's doing some real stuff right now, so I think that we've got a lot of cool stuff to talk about. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. That yeah. Didn't a lot come for you. Yeah. Well, I don't know. People say that, and I don't know if I believe it. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, yeah, so we've known each other a long time. A long time. Like long 10 plus years now 10, ten plus something like Back that days of harry hines in dallas and hole yeah. in the wall and yeah or at least heard of you but yeah and then those were good times those blue the blues jam days man back in your saxophone Sneak, days yeah that's the only way i could play because there's <laughs> so many guitar players around yeah yeah, I so know. I'd, I would lug that saxophone around. Yeah, no, that's the way to go. Do you still play it? Uh, I did a show recently with Big Mike at Lola's, and I, um, it was an NXS tribute thing for the yeah. Fort Worth Rock Assembly, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. there that. was a couple songs that that had sax solos or something on, and he asked me to do it. I hadn't played in like a year and a half, yeah. like even touched the thing, <laughs> and I had like two weeks to figure it all out. And nice. I'm glad everybody. It was late at night, so I'm glad everybody was a little intoxicated when they <laughs> heard it. Yeah, that so. helps. That helps for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm still shaking this cold. If I cough, I got into a coughing fit yesterday when I did Luke's. Yeah. And it was like I was in the middle of the show and I couldn't stop coughing. I felt bad for all the listeners. That's not good for for podcasting. No, uh, but it makes it real. It's, yeah. It's organic. It's raw. I never cut anything out of these things, so whatever you say is going to make it in. Cool perpetually so anyway you've changed your band name yeah to michael lee and the wartime limousine yeah that's an awesome name you think so i think it's a cool name i think it's pretty cool i toyed around for a long time with trying to come up with the chris watson and the somethings right and i could never come up with anything that i liked it it's really difficult and i made up my mind that i was gonna do that around march yeah and just was constantly Kind of like song ideas, just writing whatever comes to mind. Yeah. And there was like, there was a couple that we thought about, like the soul trees or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, man, that creates a big image, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but I was actually, uh, I was actually in the hospital with my grandmother in like August or something like that. Mm -hmm. and she was be fine, just have appendix out or whatever, but mm -hmm. she wanted her grandsons around and, and, uh, saw on tv it was like a fun fact because she was watching a world war ii documentary or something and i'm a huge world war ii buff mm -hmm. and uh 
it the jeeps that would carry the generals around yeah. or just prominent figures in the battlefield mm-hmm. to and from the battlefield different places were called wartime limousines huh and i thought that would be a great name for a band yeah that is it is cool it's uh i didn't know that so i was just kind of formulating my own yeah a lot of people think it's political too yeah and i'm not opposed to that yeah could be you could make it that even if it didn't start out that way yeah that's a cool name though i it it kind of came out of nowhere i didn't i didn't know you were doing that and so i saw it one day and i was like all right it's kind of a new brand and a new beginning with your new sound and yeah it i something needs to change and we're in the process of getting all the logos and t-shirts made and all that stuff done so we'll have something for people to have and we're in the process of making a record too and um yeah i got a great band behind me you do yeah you sure do when we were in san angelo i was with zach Mm -hmm. playing that same festival y'all were playing all the guys in my in the band were just enthralled listening to you guys oh it's pretty cool that's great man zach's a great dude yeah he is he is a good dude i like him a lot it's good working for him it was an easy musical transition for me you know when i went on my hiatus to join that band because it's kind of the same same kind of stuff soulful stuff right so and i got to play keyboard yeah exclusively that's gonna be fun it is fun it's something i had always wanted to do i uh i played piano my whole life really but i never really took it seriously enough to do it on stage until a couple of years ago i bought this keyboard right here actually and i started taking it to my acoustic shows to just have it you know plugged into my loop pedal or whatever and right just do whatever and uh, st- figured out that i remembered how much i enjoyed it and uh, started playing a little bit more and when i took my break initially that was what i wanted to do i wanted to be the guy that could do both play guitar and right. play keys or organ or whatever and so I started practicing, and then when I picked up Zach's gig, it was it's like ninety five percent organ and keyboard. So. That's that's awesome. I've always <sighs> said I've always said whenever people are like, man, if you could play any instrument, yeah, uh, it's like I would trade everything I've learned about guitar and saxophone to be able to like sing pretty and play piano, man. That's, yeah, it's a really expressive instrument. I think more than more than most. I mean, you can do any instrument, you can make them expressive, but I feel like for some reason with the piano, I think it's because you you cover a lot of ground with both hands mm-hmm. that you can really you can really get a lot accomplished. And it's it's very percussive too. Yeah. You know? There's a lot of you, you can represent the whole ensemble. Yeah. There's a lot of you can cover a lot of ground and so I I appreciate it for that. I've slid more over into the the B3 and organ world. Yeah. Of my keyboard playing, which I really like, and it's totally different from playing piano. Yeah, all the <laughs> all the slides and the and yeah. the swells and all that, and and you it's a different thought process for sure. When I jump on more of a piano setting, I kind of have to actively change the way that I approach it. Yeah, and uh, go go more percussive and and think more about that kind of stuff. And yeah, so I don't know. It's been fun though. I. Uh, there was a time when I first started playing with Zach. It was kind of funny. I, I was playing with Dalton Domino for a couple of months mm-hmm. just here and there just, just to do something. And uh, that was a lot of fun because it was just screaming rock and roll. And I didn't really play any solos. There was like two songs maybe that I would play like a four-bar lead right. on. So it wasn't anything. It was just screaming organ stuff and uh, kind of that alt-country stuff that he's doing. Right. And uh, when I joined Zach's band, I told him, I said, hey, look, I'm working on it, but I'm not that good of a soloist, so don't 
really like don't make me play a lot of solos he was like yeah that's cool totally i won't and then the very first gig i'm playing on like almost every song every song playing, yeah. yeah and so i felt i was so embarrassed yeah I that's like, awesome i felt like such an idiot too and, I, and nothing i played was good and so for the first for the first month or so every gig i was practicing a ton because i knew he was going to do that right and uh so i the first the first month or so I was embarrassed every time I'd play. I'd be like, God, I'm playing this remedial stuff. And it's, I'm not playing any wrong notes, but I'm not playing anything interesting. Transpose. Transpose up to the key. Yeah, the, yeah. I know and the so, blue scale in. Yeah. And so I eventually got to a point where I wasn't embarrassed anymore after about a month. Yeah. And now I feel pretty good about it. but I would be absolutely horrified to do a piano solo. But like a B3 solo, I feel like you can get away with a little bit yeah. less knowledge. Yeah. Well, you don't have to do as much because you can you can mess with the tone, right. with the draw bars. You can stop and start the Leslie. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors that takes away from having to play a lot of notes. Some pretty cool smoke, though. Yeah, it is cool. I love it's, it. It's really awesome. It's it, I love it. I, the good B3 and organ players are, are rare mm-hmm. and, and really fun to listen to. But. Yeah. I uh, I've gotten really into that kind of stuff though. Since then, I, there's a bunch of organ trios and stuff like that with with just phenomenal B3 players, and I'm just kind of stealing licks and stealing sounds. And that's what we do. Yeah, that's that's about it. <laughs> it's extremely derivative now. Everything I'm doing, but John Medeski is my favorite. Okay, from Medeski, Martin, and Wood. They're kind of experimental. Some of it's really out there. Okay, but it's. Uh, it's he's his B three tones as a modern B three player they're second to none. It's so really? cool to listen to him. Like I can hear him on other people's records and go, I know exactly who that is because the way that he gets these tones, I don't know how he does it or what what he's doing, but it's just it's incredible. Yeah, it's such an art form. Just the draw bar patterns is such Man, a, such an art form. I I love the sound of a B three and I like well placed. Like um, I got really into really great bands with a lot of really great players and and you could tell they were really great and it just got to the point it was like man uh as a band what are you saying you know it's like oh showing off here showing off there and then i listen to people like nathaniel raycliffe yeah and the night sweats and it's just parts yeah it's not so much like overproduction but the arrangement Mm -hmm. is incredible and then that that piece of the b3 in there is just amazing yeah yeah it feels so much sound that a guitar can cannot do absolutely yeah you can keep adding guitar players to your band and it doesn't it doesn't achieve that no like that even with the pedals and all that that you can do they make that leslie simulator like it's just not the same no it's and also the difference between a simulator like on a on a nord versus an actual leslie cabinet you wouldn't think would be much of a difference but when that sound is physically in the room being thrown around from a rotating speaker it sounds even better doing right. that i bought one it's in the shop right now but i bought a leslie cabinet to go with my nord awesome and every time i get i can't use it i get upset because it's it's to the to the non musician it's virtually the same thing right cuz it's coming from the speakers <clears throat> from the stage and you can pan it and do all this the tricks but on stage having that thing right next to you it just it fills in the stage with that sound yeah so i don't know it's just it's this sonic ethereal thing that happens with a with an actual leslie cabinet so yeah it's really cool i bought a smaller one that's called a g37 and hammond is 
making them in there. It's new. It's black Tolex. Like it's not an old wood box and it's really small. It's probably, if you think about the old wooden ones, it's probably mm. literally half the size of one of those. Okay. In terms of height and and width, square width. It sounds. It sounds pretty much the same. Similar. Yeah, it's got, it's got the two horns on the top and they rotate and it's got a drum on the bottom that rotates, but it's a 12 sub instead of a 15. So it's okay. a little bit, you don't get quite as much full range, but when you're blasting it, it sounds exactly the same. I mean, for the most part, that's awesome. And you can mic it up and, and boost the lows and it does the same thing, but yeah. it's phenomenal. What I like about it the most is it has a hundred watt amp built into it. Solid state amp built into it. Okay. And a quarter inch in. So I don't have to have this crazy eight pin thing, you know, to go along with it. Cause I had, uh, I had one of those, uh, model 16 Leslie cabinets, mm-hmm. the, the, like the cold shot sound. Yeah, I had one of those. When it's one stationary speaker that points out, and then it's a spinning baffle, and you mic the sides, and it had this five-pin connector. Yeah, and its own foot switch, and you could only use that, and you had to plug it. You had to use an amplifier with it, which is why I have this Music Man HD one thirty that I bought to run it. And it was really cumbersome. Yeah, to use, it sounded fine. It didn't sound as good because it was made for guitar players, not for keyboard players. But it still had the rotary speaker, and that was cool. It was better, but not as good. You know what I mean? Like right. it's that halfway point between a Leslie cabinet and a simulator. And uh, but it was so cumbersome because that five pin plug, those little pins are just barely soldered on, mm-hmm. and they break off. And yeah. You gotta solder them back on, and it just keeps getting weaker. And then it might break the signal, and you don't really know. So. It was interesting. I ended up selling it and buying this other one, but um, there's so many ways to go about it, but you just can't beat that live spinning speaker sound. Yeah, man. I just love it. It's 360. It's incredible. It's all around you. (laughs) Whereas a guitar amp, a lot of times it's just hitting you in the back. Yeah, it's directional. Yeah. Or, you know, get in the monitor world and you got everything mic'd and everything's coming through your monitor. It just doesn't feel the same. Right. It's because it's not surrounding you. Yeah, that's entirely true. It's it is. I've become a kind of a a prima donna about sound and what what I sound like when I'm on stage and you know having things a certain way and yeah, you get that way after doing this long enough. You like what you like and and you know you get in certain places and the club or the venue or the sound guy won't accommodate you and it totally throws your whole show off. It does. I get that way. It does. I uh, we did that festival uh, out in San Angelo. Uh huh. And there was no monitor. Yeah. Or I did a recent gig recently. I won't say where it was, but the the guy who was running sound is like, we don't have any monitors. And there was monitors flown up on the side of the yeah. little stage. And he's like, oh, those don't work. <laughs> I'm like, you got music coming out of them right now, man. Like, <laughs> like, like you just don't <laughs> you're, have you're just You're just not wanting to use it. Yeah. And he ended up hooking up Lewis into him. So I had B3 yeah. blasting. I was like, man, you can't put my vocals in there just yeah. a little bit. Yeah, if you can do that. Yeah, you just didn't want to. Sound, some sound guys are... I've ran into more good sound guys than bad sound guys. I was about to say the same. <clears throat> but the bad sound guys are... are It'll totally ruin your gig. Yeah. <laughs> and they're responsible for making you sound good. Right. To the club owner is never going to blame the sound guy if you're having a bad show because of the bad sound. Right. You know, it's just they're they're so important. Like that's like a lot of the guys that transition from from doing local band stuff to touring stuff. Like that's the first thing that you're supposed to get is a sound guy, not a merch guy, 
Right. You get a tour manager and you get a sound guy. Right. And the, and someone handles merch <laughs> along yeah. the way. You yeah. know what I mean? One of them does. But the sound guy is so important. And that's why we switched to in-ears uh, with this X32 was because of a couple of places that we played. They were putting a 58 on the kick drum and you just doing all this crazy, right. crazy stuff that didn't sound good. And they didn't know any better, but they acted like they did. Right. And they would talk down to me when I would try to correct them like they knew better. And I know that we sounded bad. And so I went, okay, well, I'm just going to buy everything. So everyone has their own mic. Everyone right. has their own cables. Everyone has their own mic stands. So my, my contract says clear the stage completely. We'll give you, we have, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a, a splitter on that thing. So one in and two out. Right. One of them goes to the X32 for our ears. And one of them goes to the front of house through a snake. And I say, here you go. Here's tails. Here's our entire stage right here. Right. They're all labeled. Plug them in your snake. You run front of house. We'll run our ears. So at least it's consistent. We feel good. <laughs> to us, yeah. At the very least, right. it sounds good to me. So I know that we're, whether or not we actually are doing well or, or not. Right. Versus what's happening out front. So then if someone says, oh, you know, it's just this was too loud or this was that. I go, okay, well, that's your guy. That's right. not my guy. You know what I mean? And then at that point, we can run front of house and monitors off that X32. Right. You can just send a left and a right out. And if you just bring, we'll, you just we'll bring a guy, it, yeah. yeah, you don't even, the guy doesn't have to bring anything. He just has to bring an iPad right? and just show up and, and do it. So that's, I think that's a good, a good way to do it. And I think that's, it makes sense as to why so many bands do that. Yeah. Cause you want your brand to be represented. You want yeah. your band to be represented. It, it has to be in yeah. the best light, it has especially to be good. When in your, you're not playing in front of your friends, right? You're playing in front of strangers. Yeah. yeah. And you don't want to sound bad. Yeah. And night after night and, and going back to that, if it sounds bad, bad on stage you're gonna play bad right if you're gonna be in a bad mood i'm guilty of that and i shouldn't be but i am but if i get in a foul mood because i can't get what i want in my wedge or i can't hear myself mm -hmm. it ruins the whole show yeah and i try not to be a little bitch about it but sometimes that I that can easily happen yeah sometimes i am i don't know that you know it is what it is but it's worth doing i think to do it i don't i don't you make the trouble to do it that much these days we don't we're not touring or anything right now but my band kind of dissolved about a year ago for the most part. But up until then, it made a lot of sense. Yeah. What we were doing. I always thought that would be a, I say good investment. Another good opportunity to add somebody to the team. You know, that's a good, valuable member. Absolutely. Is to have somebody that you trust. Yeah. At least a front of house guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you can have a bad monitor thing, but you know your buddy's out there yeah. and he's got your back. Because yeah. that's a lot of times people wonder why the headliner always sounds so much better than everybody else. Right. It's because they have their own sound guy. They have their own guy. Yeah. Versus he's going to make guy. sure that they sound good. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. But I don't know. If you're, yeah. if you're a shitty band, you're not going to sound good anymore. No, but. no. You're just going to be louder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So luckily you're not that. I enjoy, I've, I've enjoyed the progression of because we've known each other for so long, I've seen most of the incarnations of you and your music and uh, we've both grown a lot musically yeah. since then, but I've really enjoyed personally, yeah. and personally. Yeah. And I've really enjoyed kind of watching you come into your stride. And I think this version of your band seems it's the most comfortable. I think that I've seen you on stage yeah. ever. Like I, there was a lot of times where you're kind of got your head on a swivel, kind of directing traffic and trying to, keep people in check and keep people from from doing stuff and whatever and in this version of it 
you seem comfortable enough to where you can have your back to the band the whole time. Yeah. Put on a show. Yeah, man. It's it's nice having guys who want to rehearse. Yeah. It's nice having that and don't expect to be paid for it. You know, yeah, that's it's guys, a and that's area. that's kind of when it was like, man, you know what? We got a band. Mm-hmm. You know, we we got a bunch of guys that that see the end of the end of the light. They see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, and they're willing to put in the work. And we got a lot of good people around us too. You know, Nick's Nick Choate's helping us mm-hmm. with our record. And yeah, yeah, he's a valuable person to have in that he knows how to do a lot of things. Yeah. And that in the, if he's on board and willing to do them, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Between recording and playing and arranging and all of that producing, he's he's a valuable guy to have in your corner. Yeah. I I love this sound that we're going for. My dream with playing music and playing guitar was always to get to the point to where I could just be BB King. Sure. And not have to worry about playing chords right. and just entertain people. And, you know, play soulfully and sing soulfully. And I don't have a 20-piece band like he did whenever he first started going on tour, yeah. and his big tour bus. But I got a six-piece band, and it and it helps, you know. Mm-hmm. If I was, I'd probably want to add a sound guy first and then right. maybe another guitar player. Yeah. Or maybe another keyboard player. That would yeah. be cool to have, too. It would. It would. A lot of guys are doing that. One guy covers the electric piano stuff. One guy covers the organ. Yeah. And then it's just huge sound. That's what Alan Stone does. He's yeah. got two guys. And it's massive. Yeah. Which is cool. But yeah, I think that's a good place to be in terms of you can stop playing the guitar at any point and the music doesn't lose value. Yeah. It just keeps going and it doesn't drop out. That was one of the things I always hated about playing in a trio when I was running a trio for so long, and you can, I'm sure, agree with this, yeah. is that when you stop playing chords to play a lead, the bottom drops out from under everything, yeah. and it just it gets so little. And then people complain that you play too many notes. Yeah, and people, yeah, and it's like, well, what am I supposed to do? I always envy and, and appreciate, I guess, not envy, but I appreciate the trio guys who don't feel the need to do that they comp themselves while they're soloing right like a piano player would right i always appreciate that uh sean costello was like that he's a good example of that where he would play a couple of notes and then play this chord thing and so there's context for the stuff that he's playing right rather than just playing 32 bars of just one note at a time and whatever and you have to have really great players behind you yeah to fill up that that void yeah you have to have a great drummer or a musical drummer you yeah, know, and musical bass player. Yeah, uh, I know. I know that sounds word. crazy because they're all playing music, but there's yeah. a big difference. Yeah, to the to the non musician, that that may seem like an an innocuous term, but it is definitely a, a very heavy term. Right. There's a huge difference between being a musician and being a person who plays an instrument. Right. And I preach that. I, I used to preach that to my students a lot. My guitar students. They would get really into Stevie Ray Vaughan or really into Metallica or or whoever, and they would just want to play as fast as possible all the time. And it's like, well, like there's a difference between like, for me, from Steve Vai to Joe Satriani is black and white difference to Mm -hmm. me because I feel like Joe Satriani, and I don't want to drag him through the mud, but I feel like he is not he's not very interesting to listen to because he's playing too much. I think Steve Vai plays a lot, 
There's no doubt about that. <laughs> but what he plays is way more interesting, and it's way more musical mm-hmm. because he's he's following a a melody and he's following the progression, and I think his music is ultimately more interesting because of that. Yeah, I, for me anyway. I mean, for the longest time, they're hey, both phenomenal. I'm definitely not trying to shit on either. No, one. no, 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 no. Definitely, those uh, in that vein, I I will never forget the time I went to the guitar show in Dallas and. It was Satch and Andy Timmons mm-hmm. trading fours and doing all, and it was night and day for me. Yeah, like Andy Timmons is one of my favorite guitar players. Absolutely, around, and he's just so musical. Any setting, yeah, I've, I've seen him with some of the heaviest hitting blues cats around and mm-hmm. holding his own, if not, yeah, whooping everybody's tail musically. Yeah. And not necessarily technically. Yeah, he understands that he doesn't need to play a million notes to to be to get the goal accomplished. He's playing to the song, right? And playing to that, but he can. And when he does, it's for just a second, just yeah. to remind you, like, <laughs> don't forget, <laughs> here's what yeah. I can do. Right. Uh, I went and saw Doyle Bramhall uh, too at Granada a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and that concert just blew my mind. Yeah. Because he's unbelievable. He, uh, first of all, his songs are great, mm-hmm. and they're all great, uh, really incredibly arranged and produced. And he, you know, he would do guitar solos, but I f- I'm probably exaggerating. He probably didn't do this, but it felt like he didn't play a single sixteenth note run. Right. You know, like everything was very melodical and uh, well thought out. And uh, you have all these guitar players in the front row. You know, all yeah. these blues rock heroes you yeah. know and just just waiting you know for this guy to melt your face and he doesn't do it until like the last song mm-hmm. for half a bar and he turns away he pulls a eddie van halen like he <laughs> turns away and just yeah. goes and just and i was like holy cow yeah it's he, in there. He just gave the middle finger to every guitar player in this room. <laughs> like, yeah, you don't get to steal he's this that crap. Good. Well, yeah, that, and he's like, I can do it. Yeah, but there's something more important. Yeah, yeah, that gets lost in in all of those guys. I, there's a million guitar players in the world, and <clears throat> most, and a lot of them are are like that. And that I I'm guilty of that. I overplay constantly. I think it's. I think it's a safety blanket. For sure. You learn. I, I never forget that Eric Clapton interview that he did like uh, with Cream. You know, mm-hmm. he's all hippied out. Yeah. And psychedelic. And he's like got his stock licks that he talks about. Yeah. And it's just those fast little things. And it's it's filler. Yeah. And I never understood uh, when I saw an interview with Jimmy Vaughn saying, I cut through the bullshit. If I can't think of anything to play, yeah. I just won't play. Right. And... That's ballsy, you know, because that leaves some empty space. It really does, and it takes a lot of guts. Yeah, and now you're just adding more and more pressure to what you're about to play. Right, it better yeah. be that cool yeah. that you put this much time that you didn't. And uh, you know, I finally started understanding some of the older school blues guys and like Jimmy Vaughn and understanding his playing, yeah. and it started making sense to me. And uh, not just I, I'm still. A victim, or not a victim, I'm still a, uh, I don't know, 
I'm still accused and a criminal of overplaying during solos. Sure. You know, like I do it yeah, way too. too much and I'll be upset with myself after the song. Yeah. And I'll sure I'll get some guy to be like, Oh, that was awesome. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, that was horrible. Yeah. Should have never done that. Yeah. Nothing so musical. Shame on me. Yeah. Uh, and now that I have a bigger band, it's a lot easier, you know, to just play what's needed. Yeah. For sure. That was one of the biggest things that I found out when I went from the four piece to the eight piece band was we had our our first couple of rehearsals kind of getting everything in order. And I was kind of looking around in the middle of the song going, well, you're doing that and you're doing that. Like, what am I supposed to do? Right. right. <laughs> like, I don't have right. anything to do. I don't have to do anything or I can just kind of chuck these little, I can do something percussive or right. just whatever kind of. And so that was, it was such a liberating thing. Cause I had gone from that three and four piece, you know, blues rock soul stuff for so yeah. long where you have to fill in all the space. You're playing a solo in every song Yeah. to playing in a 90 minute set. I play three solos and I've got, I've got five soloists on stage with me that can, right. that can play a, a good solo. You know, you break it up and that yeah. was awesome. That's it's such a great it's really game. nice. It totally changed my guitar playing too. I don't yeah. play nearly the same stylistically now than I did three years ago. It, it changed my appreciation for other guitar players that yeah. maybe I didn't uh, notice how great they were, but to still like Steve Cropper. Yeah. That guy is amazing. Yeah. He really is. Yeah. And, and the little nuggets and the nice little things that he adds in. You listen to Dock of the Bay and all that guitar part. Yeah. It's just, it's genius. It's, yeah. it's incredible. I've become a really big fan of Pete Anderson as he, well. <clears throat> and Pete Anderson. Double stop. King. He's the same way. Yeah. And what he plays is, is, is so tasty, but it's, it's minimalistic. To a fault, even sometimes. Oh, I'm thinking Scotty Anderson. My bad. Pete Anderson is Dwight Yoakam's guitar player. Okay, yeah. So all that stuff like uh, the yeah. I was that like, whole album, man. It's that. a phenomenal. It's a phenomenal style, and that and that Bakersfield Western swing country style back in the in that era, and he invented that style of playing because the other people that were doing it were your Brent Masons and people like that. Right. Uh, that were just blinding everyone with with phenomenal guitar. Brent Mason's one of the best guitar players that's ever lived, right. hands down. But stylistically, if if Brent Mason had played on Dwight Yoakam's record, it totally would have changed the vibe of the record. Yeah, you know what I mean. Guitars, Cadillacs specifically. That solo that Pete Anderson plays with all those cool double stops and steel play steel mm. bends that he's doing on the guitar. Like he invented that. Yeah. And it's, it's such a cool style of playing that, that Western California, Western swing style. It's awesome. But I didn't really get it until, until like you just said, until I stopped worshiping the, the Joe Bonamassa's, and guys like that. Who? Why is Joe Bonamassa on my Facebook every day? <laughs> First of all, what uh, kind of de- what kind of publicity deal is that guy signed? I, I don't know. It's unbelievable. He, he is he, everywhere. Self-made man. Unbelievable. Have you seen that I can't documentary that anything. they came out? Like they produced. Uh huh. And about, he probably produced for himself. Yeah, I think so. And it was how they took a gamble, <laughs> and they like rented out the venue in Florida, and yeah. Paid for all the, uh, I don't know. They just they took on all the expenses and doing all the promotions and all that stuff, and yeah. just took a big gamble. And then, like the place got filled up three quarters of the way, yeah. and they made a huge profit. Yeah. And they were like, "We can do this everywhere we go." Yeah. So he's 
just he's been a really smart businessman. Yeah, we figured the formula shows. out about ten years ago. Yeah, he figured out who he was, what he's all about, right? And just he's putting out like a record every eight months. Yeah, and it, it, dude's catalog, he's got like forty albums out. It's ridiculous. I'd stop. I don't know. I was right around that time. I guess we would all been. I would probably been in eighteen or so, mm-hmm. and you were probably what twenty or something like that. How old are you now? I'm twenty eight. Yeah, I'm thirty. So that's okay, right. and we were hanging out with Chet Stevens and mm-hmm. Kenny Fuller, and, and everybody was. I think Kenny was really into Joe B, and I think Chet was really into John Mayer, and mm-hmm. I just couldn't, for whatever reason, I couldn't get into either of them. Yeah, and it's probably to a fault because I now can appreciate John Mayer. Sure. Now. Yeah. But uh, so I just it's like I gotta find some guitar heroes. Like, yeah. I got to. Um, feel like I'm going to get as good as I can at Stevie. And like, I was tired of it. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, uh, so my dad took me out to the keys lounge, uh, to hear buddy Whittington. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, yeah, that was life changing for me. Absolutely. Because, you know, I'm sitting there like every little punk ass guitar player, like, all right, yeah. let's see how good he is. Yeah. And then he starts off with like hideaway and he just nails everything, mm-hmm. you know? And then I'm like, well, uh, but he can't sing. And then the, he yeah. opened his mouth and you're like, holy cow. Yeah. And then it's, well, I bet he can't play slide. And then, yeah. You know, and yeah. then you're like, holy, who is this guy that, yeah. you know, yes, this little bar is packed full of people. Yeah. But I've never heard of this dude. Yeah. And then uh, moved on to Rusty Burns mm-hmm. and just trying to steal as many buddy and rusty licks as I could. Yeah. And that those were became my influences. And though I couldn't have picked two nicer yeah. guys to yeah. be able to go to these little hole in the wall bars and sit down and talk with these vets. Yeah. Legends. Yeah. I never really got to know Rusty very well. I've gotten to know Buddy fairly well over the years, but I never really I've only had I can count on one hand the conversations I had with Rusty. He was always really nice, but he didn't have anything, you know, we didn't have anything in right. common to talk about. So. I saw him at Papa G's in Watauga mm-hmm. on like a Tuesday or whatever weird night and him and Neil Drennan and all they were playing and Rusty's just shredding. Yeah. You know? And we're like, what? And these are these modes that I've never yeah. just recently started looking into modes and he's applying them really well. Yeah. So I was like, what, what are you doing? What modes are you doing? He's like, well, I got arthritis in this hand. <laughs> and I'm like, son of a, you know, uh, but he, me and him became pretty good, uh, pals and I would go see him and hang out with him. And he was a really nice guy. Yeah. He really was. Yeah. He was always super nice to me. We just, we didn't really have anything to talk about. And he, he would be so nice. And then he would just, melt your face yeah if, if you ever like bucked up you know like yeah. on stage like oh yeah if, if you ever thought you were oh yeah good yeah and I, I remember being you were there at the watering hole and i got up and played with rusty and buddy for that memorial yeah, yeah. jam i remember that and i was scared <laughs> out of my mind yeah it was like well i've i've only stolen maybe five licks from buddy and <laughs> i could only figure out one from rusty yeah Everything I'm about to play, they can do and do better. Yeah, and, yeah. Man, I'm so glad they took some of those videos down. I was just <laughs> like, man, like as soon as I thought I was anything, either Buddy yeah. or Rusty would just listen, kid. Yeah. Well, you got to do that, too. You got to get on stage with guys like that and just get put in your place. You yeah. F- you figure out who you are real fast mm-hmm. when you're 
when you're doing that. You know, any, anything really, sports or anything, you gotta you gotta <clears throat> be around people who are better than you, yeah. who are pushing you to be better. Yeah. You know, and uh, Buddy was always funny like that when you'd ask him to show you something. He'd be like, well, I'm not doing anything. Man, you can do that. I don't need to show you that. And you're like, well, really, he hasn't, though. He hasn't shown me anything. But really, though. Yeah, <laughs> no, been, you've never, I've been asking for 10 years. Yeah, and he never will. And he's just, no, no, it's not. It's not. It's nothing, man. You can do that. And then just kind of walk away. Like, right. Okay, well, I can't do that, but thanks. <laughs> like, thanks for nothing. No. <laughs> yeah, man. And then, you know, now it's my, I, my mindset has changed and it's more focused towards songwriting. Yeah. And being able to convey emotion with singing yeah there's a market right now for that for the 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 soul r&b bluesy soul r&b stuff with good lyrics right before that it wasn't it was more about the music right and now it's kind of the singer songwriter soul it's a blue-eyed soul thing it's a funny tight tight rope to walk because you have to you want different and unique lyrics yeah but if you get too far out like you get too too crazy then it's it's over everybody's head yeah and it's still working man's music you know what i mean like it's it's blue collar music yeah and you can't make it too you know i don't know yeah you don't want to alienate people no but it's easy to do that's why that charles bradley cover of changes Mm -hmm. that have you heard that Mm -hmm. but the it works so well Mm mm-hmm because the the lyrics are something that you would see in a Wilson Pickett tune. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That guy kind of came out of nowhere too. Yeah. And exploded. I don't love all of it, all the stuff he does. He's got a great voice. It's very unique. He's very uh expressive with yeah. it. Yeah. He's got that thing that he does, you know. Yeah. It's very unique and he picked up uh that band out of it's not the Dap Kings. It's a band out of like Portland or Seattle or somewhere. Yeah, that, it's Seattle. That he picked up. <clears throat> They're really good. It's a good. It's a good group. It's a good ensemble that he's doing. There's a lot of that that's coming out. That's that's growing like that. Mm-hmm. Your JJ Gray faction of of that swampy Florida sound and and uh, Alan Stone and people like that. It's cool that that style is coming back around. I'm I'm funny when it comes to listening to similar styles. Like if I if I listen to thirty seconds or or a song of somebody, I'm like oh, that's what I wanted. I'll turn it off. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's I want plausible deniability, but I don't want any. <laughs> yeah. I don't want any influence yeah. in it. You know. Yeah. I would just want it to be natural. So when people ask me what I listen to, a lot of it's Jason Isbell. Yeah. And Sturgill Simpson and. Mm-hmm old country guys yeah because it's not gonna come through in the music that i create well, well you think that well the lyrics probably do yeah the lyrical content and maybe the songwriting style do but i don't think there's anything wrong with being derivative i still haven't learned a johnny lang song and i've been compared to him for sure your vocal ever. texture i could see that otherwise i don't really see that comparison it's, he's got you guys to kind of have the raspy thing going for you right but you know, people, it's funny. People do those comparisons, make those comparisons, and they, I don't, it's always a compliment, but they don't know that, that we know a lot more about that stuff than they do. So it's not as much of a compliment as they think it is a right. lot of the time. 
But it always comes from a good place. I get, I, I get John Mayer a lot. I'm like, I sound nothing like John Mayer <laughs> at all. Right. But I, I'm doing this kind of weird singer-songwriter soul thing, and, right. and that's the only thing that they know. That they can compare it to. Yeah, and so that's that's where it goes. And, and as humans, it's human nature. What is what is this like? What can I group this in with? You know, it's not a new thing. And so every time someone does that, I just go, oh, yeah, you know, I like John Mayer. Thanks. You know, Because I know that they're giving me a compliment. Right. But I don't think I sound anything like John Mayer, personally. Yeah, I don't think you do. I don't think so. But, you know, if if someone is enjoying it and they want, they feel compelled to come up and talk to me and give me a compliment and that's what their compliment right. is, you know, I'm not going to sit them down and go, okay, look, here's why I don't sound like John Mayer. Here's why right. you're wrong. Don't ever tell me that again. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the uh, last record you made. I really do. I think that fits your voice the best. The and Fort Worth Sessions, yeah. the Americana record, yeah. I think that fits you. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if you enjoy it as much, but it definitely fits your voice. Your vocals were kind of meant for that sound, I think. Yeah, so. I uh, I did that record because I just kind of wanted to. Like you, I was listening almost exclusively to guys like Jason Isbell mm-hmm. and 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 people in that realm. Mm-hmm. And I got really into songwriting as well. And I wanted to do... I was playing a ton of acoustic shows. Right. So I was kind of cutting my teeth on on this acoustic Americana world. Right. Um, I enjoyed that doing that record. I enjoyed writing those songs. And there's a bunch of songs that didn't make that record as well um, that I still do live. I have more fun with the big band stuff. Yeah. I, I feel more of a connection with the, the R&B stuff the R&B world. And I'm trying right now before I do this next record to find a middle ground between what I was doing with the horn section mm-hmm. and what I did on that record. Right. Where maybe so, some, so Delbert McClinton with better lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe something like that. Yeah. <laughs> like where it's country I, and soul kind of fused and I just, or I, different lyrics. I should say it's funny. We were making that record and I kept telling the guys in the band this is not a country record, so don't play country record stuff. Right. I don't, we're not making a country record. It became kind of the theme of our, our recording week of people would play this kind of stock lick and I'd go, nope, don't do that. Do something else. You know, one of there's no, right. there's no bouncy one, five bass lines. Do something right. else. That's, you know what I mean? Don't play country. Yeah. yeah. That was kind of the whole thing. And I kept having to tell people and I was bringing in. Country players, non-country right? players. Oh, non on purpose. Brooke was there though. Brooke was the only one. Okay, but she's so much more than that. Yeah. And so what I got her to do, I told her even, I said play violin, don't play fiddle. There's a distinct difference between yeah. the two. Yeah. And so you know she was she was doing what she does. Brooke is one of the most talented fiddle players I have ever seen. Man, me and her go way back too. Really? Because I played in that Texas country band. Long, long time ago with Eric Dennis. Oh, and yeah. she was in it for a little while. Yeah. And I could not stump her. Like, She's unbelievable. And this was, I don't know, 10 years ago, yeah. nine years ago. Well, I asked her about her upbringing, her musical upbringing, when we were doing this record. And she told me that when she was a kid, she, her parents would tote her around like a little kid, elementary school age. Mm-hmm. Her parents would tote her around to bluegrass festivals and enter her into fiddle contests as a kid, as a child. Wow. And she would win a lot of them as a, as a kid. And so she loved it because she was winning and she was right. doing, she was obviously good at it and whatever. And then as she grew up, she learned all the theory about what she was already doing. Right. And then now she's this crazy, 
crazy amazing fiddle play, violinist and fiddle player right and so what i really admire about her was when we were doing that record she i i didn't give her much coaching before the first couple of takes right and i would let her formulate her own thought and complete it and get it to where she was happy with it and then we would go from there right and a lot of it was i told her the only thing i told her was that i wanted violin instead of fiddle because I'm I'm trying I was trying to make more of a Jason Isbell style record right. than like a Texas country record because you'll never find me doing that because I'm not interested in that. Um, I just I'm not. I, and there's nothing wrong with it. That's just not who I am. I no, don't. I don't. Not. You know. I enjoy those guys a lot. That's just not. That's not me. And it would be so fake if I tried to right. do that. And so she did her she did her thing and she's got this uh it's a five string violin it's not a viola it's a violin it's a five mm. string and it's from like the early 1800s this german company it's a, the most incredible instrument i've ever seen it's old and it's it looks old but it's in really good shape and like right. it sounds when you're next to it unmiked it's it's the most beautiful sounding instrument i've ever heard and so she's got this thing and it's got a fifth low it's got a low string on an extra low string and i she was playing a lot of these kind of higher uh dancey upbeat you know kind of fiddly stuff and right. i said stick to the lower <laughs> fiddly. <laughs> I said, stick to the lower three strings and do more like almost like cello type stuff right on this violin and that's what ended up on the record and a lot of it is just long just one note long right. drawn out this sweet vibrato and and she did it without batting an eye. She went, great. Is that what you want? Awesome. I can do that. Great. Right. No ego. No like, well, I think this is better. I like this better. I think she, this would be she, cool. She just went, great. That's what yeah. you want. Awesome. And then she nailed it because she can. She does cello stuff too. I don't know if you know that. No, I, I figured I wouldn't put it past her. She does. Like she, She'll, she's always been super yeah, talented. I tried to get her to bring the cello to that session and she was in the shop. It was getting worked on so she couldn't. And she was talk. we were talking about doing... <clears throat> like two and two and three part cello and violin stuff. Oh wow! Like string section that'd, stuff, that'd and she can do all of it herself. Yeah, it would have been cool on some of it, but it might have been overkill at this point. And there's a lot of fiddle on that record, but um, it was such a cool experience. She's so unbelievably talented, man. I I was really grateful to have her and be so gung ho about it. She was yeah. all about it. She really enjoyed it and. She's done a couple of solo gigs with me where it's just the two of us for like a 90 minute deal or whatever. And she's just, she's, she's crazy good. Stupid good. And she it's, sings good harmonies. Yeah, man. But I appreciate you saying that. I enjoyed making that record. Uh, I'm, we made that record and I promoted it and I, there's a single that's still out. That's, uh, it's probably faded away a little bit or a lot by now, but that was back in May. 17, right? Yeah. And, uh, I still do that song at my acoustic shows around mm-hmm. around here and in, in other places. And people who aren't paying attention, who listen to those stations that were, it was playing on, they right. turn around and go, wait, wait a second. Yeah, I know that song. <laughs> Is that you? Yeah. I go, yeah, it's me. But I did a bunch of shows on that record, pushing that record. And what I realized was there were a lot of venues that I was playing that I didn't have two hours worth of that kind of material. Right, and I had this four-piece band with a keyboard player and me on guitar, and we were, we would kind of sprinkle those songs in with the other songs. Yeah, it that's over, a weird it transition. Didn't, it isn't didn't it? go over very well. 
at all in a lot of the places. I'm in that right now. It's really strange. And so I realized, I kind of realized who, a, a lot about who I was in that moment of, I'm not a country guy. I didn't grow up on country music, so I don't really know anything about it. Right. Uh, I played in this classic country cover band playing bass. Do you remember Choke yeah, Country? Yeah. I did that for about two years. <laughs> and they would bring up, they would go, hey, let's do this tune. And everyone in the band would go, oh, yeah, I know that tune. And then I would go, I've never even heard of that. <laughs> like I, that All my exes, what? Yeah, I, don't... Well, no, I, I remember. I think the most, uh, and no. it's, it's embarrassing now, but at the time, this is probably four years ago, five years ago, and at the time it was Silver Wings. Oh, and yeah. someone said, hey, it was on the fly in, in the middle of a show. Mm-hmm. And that's like a stock standard. Oh, yeah. Every band knows Silver Wings. Yeah. <laughs> and so they go, okay, let's do Silver Wings. And I was like, I don't know what that is. Yeah. And they go, they all looked at me like I was retarded. Yeah. And and I went, I can follow it. None of this stuff is rocket science. I can follow you, but I don't know what that is. I, I had my baptism baptism by fire with country music and that kind of country music at Countdown. Yeah. When I had that jam on Sunday. Yeah, that's with right. Tracy Tyler and Mike Brown and Kent Crawford, who owned the place. Uh-huh. He would bring out his acoustic. And yeah. He would, all right, let's do Silver Wings. Let's do this and let's do yeah. that. And I'm like, guys, I don't. I don't know that Stevie song. I don't. I don't know. Is that <laughs> yeah. ZZ Top or like yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. Like we're. Uh, yeah. And then so that's that's how I got my baptism with yeah. all that music because I had to learn it. And next week he would call the same. Yeah. Same thing, or yeah. it'd be something different. Green snakes on the ceiling or something. And yeah. I was. Had to learn. I've never and then even these, heard of that. I don't the, even know what that is. Uh, it's a pretty good song. I'm sure it is. Yeah. I've never heard of it. It's pretty cool. So. Uh, yeah, and then you get all these country guys. That's where I met Clay Shelburne the first time. Mm-hmm. Because he played that jam. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone says whoa. that when they see him for the first time. Yeah. Him and Clay Willis, too. Oh, yeah. Clay Willis can play anything with strings on it. That's the craziest thing. <laughs> is that you'll put a mandolin in that dude's hand and he'll right. burn it up like you've never seen. Right. And anything with strings on it, he can play it, he can play it better than most people right. that do that. It's crazy. That's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And then you have guys like, you know, Ron Stafford? He was a slide yeah. pedal guy. Uh-huh. He came out and we were doing that jam and like, hey guys, let's. I I, I wanted to do Sir Duke. Yeah. He's like, how's that go again? And you give him like two notes. And he's yeah. Like, oh, got it. Yeah. But it's like, dude, that took me a couple days <laughs> to get that lick down. Yeah, yeah. The difference between your situation and my situation is that I was playing bass. Oh yeah. And so I couldn't not know these songs. No, yeah, you definitely had to know them. Yeah. And all the inflections and playing in a cover band with Big Mike is its own it's nerve wracking. It is. I did the saxophone part right, and if it's wrong, he'll tell you. Yeah, and he will tell you immediately. I had. I remember. I'm gonna put Big Mike on blast. When we had Choke Country, yeah, we're on face. We're on live, yeah. so yeah. he's on blast. When we had Choke Country, there was a couple of bass lines that I was doing where it was supposed to be a one to five to one to five. And I was playing them as just one, one to one. And I, and in my brain, in my ear, it's the same thing. Right. It's it's not changed. Like I'm not missing chord changes. Right. But he had me over to his house and had these, (laughs) there was like five songs lined up in a queue on like a Spotify playlist. And he goes, listen to these. 
and play them like that. And I said, I'm doing that. I'm playing them like that. He said, you're not playing them like that. You're playing them like this. And I was like, what's the difference? And he was like, the difference is that's how it is on the recording. So do it like that. And I was like, holy crap. I didn't know. Like in my mind, it was exactly the same. But, you know, to him, he he takes it very seriously. It goes back to the arranging parts. Yeah. You know, the producing a band and producing a song that way. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why they didn't just stay on the one. Yeah, exactly. And in my brain, I'm thinking we play on Monday nights to 30 people. Right. What's the difference? You know what right. I mean? But to him, you know, he in, in all of his stuff, he takes it a lot more seriously. Than well, that. and that's why I had to get those saxophone parts correct. <laughs> I'm sure you yeah. did. Well, you would have heard about it if you did. Yeah. No, he was totally easy on me because he knew I, I hadn't played. And, yeah. And it was they kept introducing me as Jeff Daisy. Because <laughs> I was kind of off in the corner. And they're like, yeah. Jeff Daisy on saxophone. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's cheering. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Mike has, has since then has never asked me to do any of his cover stuff. <laughs> and I've always wanted to. Like there's a couple of projects that he's opened up to the public mm-hmm. in finding members. And I almost all of them I go, yeah, I'd love to do that. And I never hear from him. I'm sure that's why. <laughs> That's too funny. Yeah. So whatever. But <laughs> that was a really enjoyable time. But that was kind of my that was my introduction to country music. So tying this all back into what we were talking about earlier, I was playing these bars in these venues that I wanted to play, Blaine's mm-hmm. and Cheatham Street and all these places that I wanted to play. And we would do the songs that people could relate to because that's what they were there for. And then we would do like When You Get Back and right. Last Train Home. And they'd go, what is this? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. I I'm I'm in that same same boat right now because my first record was all blues rock right based you know and it doesn't translate as well to what this new new thing that we're doing right and it, it helps because Preston wrote horn parts for all those songs and some of them right. translate well and some of them don't and uh, I think we got forty five minutes of that stuff and a lot of and the new songs that we're doing, there's a, there's a lot to them. Like, uh, there's this one song. It, it, at the very beginning, it's kind of horns and it's all ethereal, and you lose the one and you don't know where it is until the very downbeat, and then it's this kind of up tempo beat that and it just takes a lot of rehearsing to get this yeah. sounding correct. Yeah, you know, like it's like yeah, great, we all landed together, but it didn't feel right. So yeah, let's go back and do it. And before we can bring it out to the public you know it's got to be right yeah and um but some of these i think we got four or five songs that are going to be on the new record that we're playing and they're people love it you know they seem to like it yeah that's kind of the gauge if i there's a lot of tunes that i've written and played that i thought were great and get zero response and you have to start tweaking them until you start getting people to turn their heads right i've noticed that if i have a really good song it's whenever i can do a solo gig and people turn their head. Yeah. Or people start. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What is this? You know? And I think uh, I did the Justin Elliott, like, concert mm-hmm. benefit thing that they did at Lola's Trailer Park. Mm-hmm. And uh, me and Josh had a long, long conversation. And he was like, man, your songs got to be able to stand on their own with just you and your acoustic. Mm-hmm. And I think you can even take it one step farther. Like the song, if you take all the music away Mm -hmm. and just look at the lyrics, it should invoke some sort of emotion. Sure. Yeah. Josh told me the same thing a long time ago. 
when I was putting that horns band together because I relied on that pretty heavily. I would do mm-hmm. acoustic shows and I couldn't, I would feel self-conscious playing any of those songs because mm-hmm. all these parts are gone. And that really made me take a long, hard look at my songwriting and my ability to craft a song just as a basic song. Right. You know, and now I find myself, I, I write, write all the time. Yeah. I'm constantly writing songs that I can't use. Right. And it's like, wow, <laughs> this is, this would be great for Zach Stokes or this would be sure. great for, yeah. you know, Cody Jenks or some, somebody who definitely doesn't need my help. Right. Doesn't need a song <laughs> for me. But yeah. it was like, man, this, this would be a perfect idea, but I definitely cannot use this. But yeah. But, so now it's you, just lost in the spiral. Yeah. yeah. And you can't stifle your creativity though. You got to oh. get it out. Yeah, because you can't, you can't go. No, nah, just turn it off and go do something else. Because that's gonna come out one way or another. Yeah, you you have to be practiced. Yeah, you know, it's an art you, form for you, sure. Because that way, whenever the inspiration that everybody always talks about hits, and like the bolt of lightning mm-hmm. hits you with this great idea, that you're able to get it done mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, be able to write it down. Because one of our songs is called Weeds, and it's gonna be. If not the single, it's going to be one of the first songs on the album. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those moments. And it just came out, and I probably wrote it in like 10 minutes. Yeah. And, it's, you know, it's got everything you could ever want in it. And yeah. It's, and it's, you know, it's very detailed, and I didn't have to go through. What I do now is I, I just splurge everything down onto the page, and mm-hmm. then I go and take out what you don't need and then try to replace like there's an art form and a process and a formula that I try to go through. Yeah. But whenever I have those inspired things, it all seem all those processes seem to happen at the exact same time and it's all simultaneous. So the song comes out really, really easy because I do practice yeah. writing all the time. Yeah. You have to, if you're going to be one of those people that, that writes good songs consistently, that doesn't happen overnight. It takes years of, yeah. Of writing a lot of bad stuff, yeah, and figuring out why it's bad, and then figuring out how to make it better. Well, I got a fireplace now, so so <laughs> I can you just <laughs> perfect. Yeah, it's good tender. Uh, yeah, and I've been trying to surround myself with good songwriters. Mm-hmm. I've gone and hung out with Jacob Fur, mm-hmm. who's really really good at what he does, mm-hmm. and it you learn something from everybody. Yeah, for sure. Jacob Fur is very unique. His style is very unique. Mm-hmm. He takes a lot of uh, like Bob Dylan esque approach to songwriting, right? And very deep emotional stories, mm-hmm. and imagery, and and metaphors, and it's very heavy. Those are the hardest things to write, man. It is, and it and it, his stuff to me gets after a while. It's a little overwhelming. Eventually, you know what I mean. Just being so deep. Yeah, you listen to enough songs yourself. in a row, and I just go, "Fuck, like, this what is, am I doing?" Like, man, well, man, should I call Jacob? Is he okay? Yeah, like, <laughs> and I just start looking at myself and going, "Man, like, what's? Am I okay? Like, yeah. what's going on?" But you know, he's got a, a a very deep well of emotion to pull from musically because right. of the situation with his wife uh, and all of that. I don't know if you're aware of of that. I'm not. Uh, we can talk about that later, but yeah. he he's got a very deep well of emotion to pull from, and this last two records that he's put out have been all about that. And so once you know that, and you go back and listen, it changes. 
the entirety of the of the two of everything yeah mm-hmm. because there's an underlying theme to all of it and so he, he's he was struck with that inspiration but i think it was more catharsis than inspiration for him um so i don't know that once you once you kind of get that knowledge in your head and somebody like him that was his way of 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 dealing with his emotions right and he was already so good at it anyway that it came out in this in this tremendous way and uh his his wife passed away okay. about a year and a half ago maybe something like two years ago something like that something to that Dang. effect and so that's what these records are about and so you can go back and listen to them and you can you you there's this underlying tone because he never comes out and says it right and so once but if you know that all the metaphors change and, for you and they make well, they make they mean different things now right when you know that and so i played bass on the cd release party for the record previous to the one that's out right now mm-hmm. i played bass on that one and we did it at magnolia motor lounge and it was the first record that he had put out and all these songs that he had written since that happened and we were at magnolia motor lounge they took all the tables out and it was there were probably 200 plus people in there and <coughs> there were people sitting down on the floor Indian style cool. and just standing around it wasn't like a dance party everyone was there to hear because a lot of people hadn't heard the songs or they hadn't right. heard the full band versions or whatever so there were a lot of people that were there for that and uh, I played bass on it and there were a couple of songs that are so gut wrenching and at the time it had been less than a year and right. it, he was still dealing with it and everyone kind of it was so it was it was heartbreaking wow. to be a part of that and there were like my eyes teared up several times during that set and people were crying all over the dance floor, like all over the room it was a really really heavy deal man but all of that to say that he's a phenomenal songwriter but that really pushed him into this overdrive of right. now there's something real that I'm writing about. I'm not just, I don't, I'm not saying he did this, but a person would take stories from other, other people or take something, this idea of a story and come up with a story. And he took this, this personal experience and turned it into music. And it's beautiful the way that he did it. And, and it's, I don't know. It's, I'm not saying that, that he's lucky or that he's, he's happy to have this inspiration, but it really, it, it pushed him into this next level of, of, metaphors and and just songwriting as a as a craft that that he's one of the best that i can think of yeah i i feel something that devastating either does that either pushes you to the next level or you 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 cave and you fold yeah yeah you would wither and and die underneath it for sure and i I didn't really know him very well until closer to the album release so Mm -hmm. i wasn't around for watching how he initially handled it. I never right. met her and I, any of that. So I don't I have anything to say to any of that, but but from what I do know of him and his character and his person is that he he's definitely the a, a kind of person who would who would kind of pull himself up by his by his bootstraps and go, right. "All right. You know, what do I need to do now?" Yeah. You know. So I envy him in a lot of ways uh, as a songwriter and as a musician. I, I think he's he's one of the most real people Man, that I know. He really is. He's he's not trying to be anything that he's not. He's, he doesn't care if you don't like it. He'll play a show to nobody and be 
maybe not equally as satisfied, but still be satisfied with himself. Right. You know, and his performance and, and I'm, I'm, I wrote these songs. They mean something to me. You're either going to listen to them or you're not. It doesn't change the way I feel about them. Right. And that's so hard. That's so difficult. Yeah. It's very tough to do. I go back and forth on that a lot where I want people to enjoy me as a musician, but then I start doing things that I don't like doing. Right. To get people to notice that I'm here in the corner of this bar. You know what I mean? Right. And I don't want to be I don't want to be that guy. I know what you're saying, man, cuz yeah. I don't want to be that guy cuz I want to satisfy my artistic integrity, but at the same time I didn't set out for, on this musical career to play to nobody all the time. So there's right. I got to find that middle ground and then sometimes I'm more like this, sometimes I'm more broody and I just want to play my songs. I don't care if anybody listens. It's weird. It's a weird middle ground. Yeah, I mean, for the longest time and until I started really writing my own original tunes, it didn't have that outlet. That that was even on a big, bigger scale of an emotional mood swing with playing these cover songs and not, not having that outlet of originality. Yeah. And if people weren't listening, it was even more of a, for whatever reason, it affected me more. Yeah. But now that I'm playing majority of my own tunes, that it doesn't affect me as much. Yeah. And I don't know. It's, and I think that's whenever I also would go into guitar solos more. Because that was <laughs> yeah. the only original thing I could do at that time. Right. Because yeah. I wasn't. You're not worried about what people think about your guitar solo. Right. You're worried about whether or not people are overall paying attention. For mm-hmm. sure. I, yeah, I do. I do that too. I, it's, it's a weird, I don't know. It's a weird place to be. Because you want people to like you. At the same time, though, I think when you start doing more of your original stuff, which I, you've come into your own of doing that now, um, and it's you, it's not a, it's not like a this version of you. You start to definitely care less whether or not people get it. Mm-hmm. You want people to get it. Oh yeah. But if they don't get it, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Because you do, you do. Because it's real. And somebody will get it. Yeah. I just recently did a So Far. Mm-hmm. Those are thing. so much fun. Man, you can hear a pin drop. It's incredible. You know? it, and they're hanging on every last word. Yeah. Every last note. And it was it was so incredible. I was like, if they don't get it in this scenario, it's okay. It just means they just didn't like it. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. like they are giving it the most fair shot yeah. that anybody could do. That's absolutely the truth. Yeah. And they, if you're talking, they'll kick you out. Yeah. Like you have to be quiet and yeah. you have to listen. There's 30 to 40 people there and they're there to see music and be entertained. Right. And if they don't get it, then that's well, okay. Well. Yeah. yeah. That's absolutely the most, the most fair situation for yeah. a guy like you and it, me. They're just they're giving you an equal ear. Yeah. You know? There's there's no bias. They don't they didn't know anything about me. Yeah. Before I did it. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it was a lot of fun and I got to hear a couple of guys that I never would have heard any anyways and it was a great way for me to just give them all my attention mm-hmm. where you can be in a on a bill with six other bands and right. you'll, you'll give like, I will go to my way to, to try to listen at least to a half of their set without trying to talk to anybody or anything or be interrupted or anything. Right. You know, and I'll, 
but whenever you're in the venue and you've already played it's you have to walk that line of being rude right and being to the people who are around you and being respectful to the band that's playing you yeah. know it's stony i did that over i can't remember that bar's name but stony was after he got done playing i played earlier and we were all hanging out with tony avizano and all those people and and he was like tony introduced us and and just to mess with Stony, I was like, shh, hold up. There's a person playing up there. Yeah. I'm just going to listen. So he shut up and started listening. Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. great, man. And he got it. And me and him had no musical thing in common. I love his yeah. singing and all sure. that stuff. But it, it was great. It was it was a lot of fun because we could just talk about uh, who was playing and yeah. what was great about it if we needed to. And yeah. Stony gets a bad rep. He's done some questionable things, but he's a good dude. I've had a lot of interaction with that guy that uh, was positive, and I've, you know, I, I think he's a good dude. I don't know anything, you yeah. know, so I, I, and I guess I don't really care to. Yeah, I, mean, it I doesn't don't. Really I don't matter. run in that circle, so. Yeah, I, it's, uh, there's no use in gossiping, but I, he's he's caught a bad rep here and there, but. Right. Overall, he wouldn't be as successful as he is if he wasn't a good dude. Right. You know what I mean? People wouldn't want to help him out and want to be around him right? if he wasn't. You know, it's really easy for someone to have a bad day or a bad week and then for everyone to just pile on and take right. a dump on him. You know, right. That's easy to do. But, yeah, that's been, that's a cool connection they make with somebody that it, you don't know. And somebody like him who's on a pretty high status. Yeah. For him to just go, okay, yeah, let's stand here and listen to it. We're on equal footing here. We're in the audience. We're not the guy on stage. We'll just talk about it, music. You know, and it was nice because uh, I think the majority, I know for the fact, majority of everybody else in, that played that night were in the same genre. Mm-hmm. You know, so they, I mean, probably rightfully so, they wanted to open up or share songs or, you sure. know, just the same old thing. And it was just. We didn't have to worry about that. It's like, man, I dig what you do. He liked what I did, and we could just hang out and talk about music, kind of like what we're doing here. Yeah. To where it's not trying to get anything from anyone. Right. Yeah. Because you're not asking that, him for opening slots. That and, dance is constantly going on. Yeah. And it's so annoying to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the epitome of this industry. Is is what can I get out of you that benefits me? And then when we're when there's nothing left to get out of you, mm-hmm. you know, then move on to the next person and it's all favors owed and favors given yeah yeah it gets it wears me out sometimes i have a handful of friends that that are that they only call me when they need something and you know i'll I'll either listen no i'll either answer the phone or i won't based on my mood like i know that they're not just calling to say hi right or asking me to go get a drink or whatever go have lunch do you still not drink Still not drinking. No, it's been Way ten. It's been ten months now. Almost a year. Almost a year. Yeah, February eighteenth will be one year, and I'm just I'm gonna keep doing That's it. Awesome. I, it's you know it's thanks. It's not difficult anymore. It was, but I'm, I'm there. I'm still not drinking much. Yeah, that's better. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's I, better. I need I need to get to where you are, but you don't I, need to. It's it's moderation is all it is. We both had a time where we were. We, I think I think everybody <laughs> we did. Yeah, yeah. Six or seven years ago, we we had some good times just together and apart. But yeah, I, I don't. You don't need to stop drinking. And no, not everybody needs to stop drinking. And I don't necessarily know that I needed to stop altogether. 
But I was at a point in my life where there were a lot of things culminating that something had to change. Something right. dramatic needed to happen to kickstart a different a different era of my life. Yeah. And that became the catalyst. There are a lot of things that have happened since then that are positive things that I can draw a direct line to that day. Right. And whether or not it was actually the consumption of alcohol, it was that dramatic lifestyle and mental shift. Yeah. I That's the way I look at it. I don't I don't want to be preachy about alcohol cuz I really enjoy a good cocktail and a good IPA. I'm an IPA fanatic. I love them. They they're phenomenal. Right. And I don't think there's anything wrong with any people drinking. Right. Everything is good in moderation. I I subscribe to that, including moderation sometimes. Right. And <laughs> I subscribe to that wholly, but for me it it was I was depressed and that was spiraling out of control. I was ready to quit music. I was I was unhappy with my physical appearance. Right. I was unhappy with the way I sounded. My band was falling apart. Uh, I was anxious all the time. Yeah. There was a lot of things that were happening, and I got a hold of it one day uh, through the help of, uh, of a relationship. And I got a hold of it, and I said, this is not good. Right. I don't feel like this is who I am. This is who I am right now, but I don't feel right. right. This doesn't feel correct. Yeah. I need to do something. Something needs to change. That So I quit drinking. I lost a bunch of weight. Subsequently, I haven't been to the gym once. Right. But I lost a bunch of weight because I stopped eating late because I wasn't drunk driving home. or Not drunk, but you know what I mean. Right. You leave the bar and you are, you're hungry because you've been taking in all this all these calories and, and liquid. And, right. and so the, the, I lost a bunch of weight. So that made me more confident. My voice immediately got better. Yeah. That made me feel better about my music. And then I started writing again and ended up writing this, this Americana record. Right. Um, and there's a lot of things that, that happened since then. I feel better mentally. I'm more stable than I ever have been. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I don't, like I said, I don't necessarily think it's because I quit drinking, but I think it's because I, I there was a very dramatic, shift in my perspective yeah. yeah man i i was drinking a lot in almost every night yeah. you know whether i was going out or not <coughs> and it was just like how much can i drink before i go to sleep yeah you know exactly and drink uh yourself into into sleep and i think it was it was august i don't know of i don't know what year but we just moved to bedford into this apartment complex and i'm from bedford but uh it was the nights that I was too hungover to drink again. <laughs> right. And it happened like four times in a month. I got pulled over on the way home. Yeah. Like right outside my apartment complex. And I was like, you know what? Like I've gotten so lucky. Yeah. It's time to walk away from the table. Yeah. You know, because I've seen friends of mine get screwed or not necessarily screwed, but get caught. Get you caught. Know? Yeah. And, it changes and your changes your whole everything. You can't. It, it ruins you. Yeah. Especially in this line of work. Yeah. You know, you can't get around to gigs. Yeah. Unless you have somebody drive you. Yeah. Or you have to get a special license and that you have to pay for it or work permit or whatever. Yeah. And it's, it's insane. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And it's been four years since I've quit smoking. Awesome. I haven't had a cigarette since. Good. I still think about it every week. Yeah. It doesn't, uh, I've, I all, I've always heard it <laughs> never goes away. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and after I stopped smoking cigarettes, I thought my voice got worse. Or whenever I stopped drinking as much, I thought I, my vocals got worse. But yeah. it was just sober. Yeah. 
you know that was just how they are <laughs> yeah it's just how they've always been yeah. <laughs> you just now care about what they sound like yeah and uh subsequently they got better yeah good i and, think you have a great voice well, you, thanks. you are loud and and very expressive and, and and emotional and and on pitch you know that's the obviously the probably the most important thing but that you know but <clears throat> i think you have a great voice it fits what you're doing really well that that boisterous r&b blues stuff i can't do anything else i've tried yeah <laughs> it doesn't work yeah it doesn't work well i uh, mean you you know who you are and i think that goes back to saying what i said earlier is that you seem the most comfortable now with this incarnation of your music and yourself yeah. and that's really important and that will be a good catalyst to writing good songs and having a good lengthy career and getting a cap on on your demons and and your who you really are and who you right. think you are man it's it's nice to, I don't, this sounds egotistical saying it, but stepping back and realizing that there's something bigger than you. Like yeah. the, the song is bigger than the band to me. Sure. And it's definitely bigger than me mm-hmm. individually. So whereas I was previously, felt like I had to work really hard to provide this crazy amount of energy right. and do something that's going to blow somebody's mind that they've never heard or seen before. Like it... I don't have to do that anymore because that's not, it's not important. Yeah. It's not important. People, I think the listeners will, will pick up on that as well. You know, when they, when you're forced, when you're forced into something that's real, you recognize that it's real. And when you're forced into something that's contrived, you recognize that it's contrived. Mm-hmm. And so that realization for you, I'm sure if it hasn't already, I'm sure it has already will translate into songwriting and translate into into who you are and will make the more comfortable you look and appear and are on stage the more comfortable people will be watching you right you're singing about stuff that means something to you and they can hear that in your voice i play a lot of acoustic shows solo acoustic shows right and i do a, i do at those depending on the crowd i'll do about half and half originals to covers um and what i try to do often is i try to play a cover song that i think people will like I only play covers that I like. I don't learn songs that I don't like. Right, me too. And so that kind of, I always tell people not to request songs because I don't know any of those songs. But I'll play a song that I like that I know people kind of know. Right. And then I'll play a song that I've written that kind of maybe sounds like it's maybe on the same record as that one. Or like it could be. I think Josh did that the best. Yeah. Whenever he did But you can see the difference in people's reaction. I could every Mm -hmm. now and then. You you play that one song you think people will know and they'll kind of be whatever and then you'll play the song you wrote and then they'll kind of they'll pay attention and I think they without realizing it you're singing that song with more inflection and it's it's more natural because you wrote it and it's coming out of you and it means something to you I think people right. subconsciously pick up on that uh, yeah I think so I think they do so the it, more comfortable you get on stage you know doing a ninety minute all original set people are going to be captivated by that right. if you're comfortable. If yeah. you're not comfortable, they're not going to be comfortable. There's yeah. a lot of times where I get bored listening to myself sing on those acoustic shows. I'll right. do a couple of songs in a row and I'll just go, this is not entertaining at all. Mm. I can't imagine. Like, if I'm bored, I can't imagine how the people <laughs> listening to me feel because right. this isn't good right now. You know what right. I mean? I'll take a break. That's Something. funny. Yeah. Josh was re- is really good about that still to this day uh, about that. He, I don't know. Josh is on another level though. He, it's hard to even classify what he's doing 
because it's so next level. I'm going to find out. He's taking me up to Lovick or the Blue Light. Mm-hmm. Be, I'll play with him and Nick and Sammy. Yeah. I think in February. Cool. It's going to be fun. Yeah. And then we're going to take that opportunity to where we can be away from everything and write and good. go over some songs. and Yeah, good. Good. He booked me on a handful of shows as keyboard player this next year, four cool. or five shows. So I'm excited about that. I'm sure you'll be around for some of them. Uh, maybe. I don't know. We're, uh, we're just trying to get this thing off the ground. You know? Yeah. And uh, Nick is the biggest proponent in this, but Josh is also somebody I can call and talk to mm-hmm. if I have any questions. Yeah, he's a good dude. He is a good guy. And... Uh, it's going to be fun, man. I can't wait to get this thing, get in the studio and start recording it. And yeah. just that way I can be, be done with it and move on, you know? Yeah. Like, and I really want to get these things out in front of people and play it live. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You playing a lot of shows right now? Uh, not really. This not a whole lot. Of... I do, um, a, a lot of acoustic things mm-hmm. at private clubs and stuff like that. Yeah. That, and that, that pays the bills. Yep. It's not always the most fun, but it yeah. does put food on the table. I'm uh, doing New Year's Eve at the Woodshed. Cool. With with the band. Cool. So yeah. That will be fun. That will be fun. I've never been there. The Woodshed? Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I did about four years there every Sunday. Yeah. Recently terminated that one. Oh. You did? Or I they did. did? I did. Okay. I just had enough. And it was getting cold, and I didn't want to deal with playing outside. Because the, <laughs> they wouldn't let me not play unless it was raining. And even if it was raining, they'd be like, well, how hard is it raining? <laughs> and so I just kind of went. There's not going to be anybody there, man. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is there's no one outside, but there are people inside. And when you're plugged into their system, you're piped through the whole restaurant. Oh. So they were like, well, you can still entertain the people inside. And I'm like, well, why would I do that? Just turn the music on, save the money. But I don't know. It was a good gig for a long time. I started doing it with Luke. Luke had the gig for a couple of years, and I came in and I would play guitar or cajon or drums. Didn't Josh do that before that too? Maybe. Or Josh and Nick did. They did the Love Shack. Oh, the Love over Shack. Over in West 7th. Okay. They, I'm sure they did Woodshed too. Okay. But Woodshed's not that old. Okay. But uh, I started playing Sideman to Luke Sundays just for a gig, mm-hmm. and uh, we would song swap or I'd play drums or whatever, and he quit. When he did the TV show, and uh, so I took it over. So I've been doing it for like four years. Wow. And it started getting cold, and they, they've they got this space heater with this like radial thing on it, and they put, them, put it next to you, and it doesn't really do anything. <laughs> so it's like, I'm not going to. It's cold. It's starting to get cold. I don't really want to do this anymore, so I just gave, I gave it up. That's funny. <clears throat> it was a good gig, though. I got a lot of private parties out of it. It's, right. a, it's a new audience every week. Right. And in the good weather, there'll be 400 people out there. And they're, you know, I would do it as a trio in the good months and solo in the bad months. And that was a good gig. I mean, I, there's nothing wrong with it. They, their food is good. They take care, good care of you, food and drinks and whatever you want. So I need to get I just four years a long time. Some more of those regular gigs. I used, there was a time I was doing a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Sunday gig. And yeah. that was my regular thing. And, yeah. wake up at four o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> yeah but i i've been going back to school oh cool yeah um i woke up one morning just it was probably a late night probably one of those times that i did allow myself to have a little bit too much one of those rare occasion occasions and um 
I decided I wanted to get a degree because yeah. I didn't want the kids that I end up having eventually not to have that excuse. Well, right. you did you didn't get a college degree. <laughs> right. You know, so why should I? Yeah. That's a good reason, if nothing so, else. Yeah. I mean, I use that excuse because my dad went to DeVry or whatever. Right. Again. But he's he was doing really well for himself, yeah. even without a college degree. And uh, I just feel like it would be better for my my lineage down the there you go. down the line. That's big picture thinking. Yeah, man. <laughs> and uh, it's. I also wanted to challenge myself. I was always looking at. I'm a big into space and 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 science and sure. everything. And I've always been curious about math. Now that I didn't really have to do it just to get out of high school, right. you know. I hated it in high school. Right. And uh, so I ended up taking biology and algebra. I'm starting from ground one. You yeah. Know? So I'm 10 years older than anybody else in the class. There you go. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And you actually physically going I, to I a went, building and yeah. it's not online or anything? Uh, well, the math class was meeting once a week. Yeah. But everything else, like biology was four times a week. Yeah. With lab and history was twice a week. Wow. Um, well, you're doing a full nine hour semester yeah that's that's and really cool i was probably a little drunk whenever i signed up but, <laughs> but i was like well i'm doing it i've already paid for it <laughs> there and, you go yeah you have to now i ended up no i math was the one that always struggled like i put off on the side because it was just one day a week and i wouldn't think about it i got you know gauged the book and everything yep. else and so then whenever monday came i was like Logs, logs, logs. All right, get it all figured out, yeah. and then all right, I'm caught up. <laughs> Let's go. And I ended up with a B, so I'm, that's I'm good. happy with that. Yeah, B's no, in all my classes. So. That's really good. I, when you're not forced into it, if you do it on your own accord, that probably your perspective is totally different mm. than being in high school, and you 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 have to take whatever class they tell you to take. Yeah, whatever. I realize the value of getting an education. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And I think of it more as a game now. Yeah. Like it's like, well, what do I have to do to pass this class? Yeah. That's you a know? good that's a good mentality to have. And we'll probably take you a lot farther than you would have maybe when you were nineteen or twenty. When you were being forced into like it or nineteen, twenty, all I want to do is play guitar and yeah. party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Sorry, mom. <laughs> oh, is she listening? <laughs> I, I'm sure she will. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Love all the attention. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or did are you uh i guess it's cold now but you're getting back into playing golf and, and doing that kind of stuff um, towards the end of the year i me, my dad plays in an mga tournament mm-hmm. at willow springs and uh he started getting me to set a handicap out there good and uh what is it i not officially set i've only done two okay got two tournaments 15. i gotta do three well you have uh, 15 rounds to right get a, to be an official handicap yeah, right USGA but th- this is for that league or whatever you, you okay. do three and they yeah. do it on the calvin system sure whatever and so like the first week yeah that's like, weird i'm yeah really weird because well the the american handicap system is even more weird so i can't really say that i like you know what kind of golfer i am i'm uh-huh. in i'm in the 90s sure right you're the and, average yeah i'm in average and i go out there that first week and i do this with bowling too like if i'm setting an average yeah i i will think i don't want to do well like i want right. to i want i want a high right but then that <coughs> competitive spirit comes in <laughs> yeah it always and, does. and i shot like an 88 or something like that yeah. and they're like well your handicap's 15 
So when you come out and shoot 82 next time, we all got, that would be the first time ever. <laughs> right. Yeah. Partner. They think you're sandbagging. Yeah. And then I, I came back and I, you know, golf is so funny. It was a 10 stroke swing. I shot a 98 the next time. Yeah. And so I need to go back and do another tournament just so I can have that one set and yeah. they can put me in the A flight, B flight or C flight. They do it every week. They do it every other week. Yeah. But, uh, it's a good way to do it too. It's golf is totally different when you're messing around with your buddies than when you're playing a tournament. Man, I love it because yeah. every, all the rules and everybody has to play by own. Yeah, and, and you get totally and focused and zoned in. And man, if you get snugged up against a tree, that's yeah. a legit. You don't get a foot wedge. No, you, no, you're, you don't. you're you were screwed, <laughs> and you better figure your way out of this. Yeah. And it was a lot of fun, man. Yeah. It's I've done. I feel that. And everybody says this, but I really do feel this. Uh, if I could just dedicate a summer, yeah, I could be, I could be in the low eighties. Sure. I, I feel like I could. The swing from mid nineties to mid eighties is relatively easy compared to going from mid eighties to mid seventies, right? And mid seventies to mid sixties is right. even harder, right? That jump is not as hard as you think it is. I don't, I don't think it is. I, I think it's just time. Yeah. And because it normally in these little tournament things, uh, halfway through the round, I'm like, oh, I figure out what's working and, yeah. you know, what I did wrong for the first nine holes right. with my swing. And so if I would just play every day, yeah, it would, it would increase. Sure. It's, it's like expecting me to go to the bowling alley and shoot 250 <laughs> every and, day, you yeah. know, <laughs> just once every three months that it's not going to happen. Yeah. No. It's a it's a it's a skill set. That's what it is. It's a skill set that you have to maintain. Yeah. It's not something that's innate. The golf swing is is awkward. It's weird. And it's very mechanical. And people try to dumb it down. You just take it back and you swing through and go like that's so much more to it than that. Yeah. And uh You helped a lot. You I did. tried to the few times that we got together. I know that we were going to do a lot of stuff and we never ended up doing it. And I apologize for that, but I, uh, yeah, I tried to without being overwhelming with information. Right. Cause I'm not interested in changing, changing your swing to a different philosophy, mm -hmm. but there are things that can be fixed within your, your philosophy. And I think game. whenever I play rounds with you and I, you know, put aside my ego or whatever and just ask you, what is the right decision to make here yeah you know that oh, that saves so many so many strokes yeah there's a funny story it's like i could totally put this through that arc in the tree that hole <laughs> right I totally i i can do it i can see the ball happening yeah. oh there's a funny old story about i think it was ben hogan or somebody like that who was teaching and he had one student he had a bunch of students younger students and uh, they were all average 90 and one of them right. was mouthing off and said well you know, I bet I can go out and shoot an 80 today. And they made this bet, and Ben Hogan was there, and he said, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take you out. I'm not going to play. I'm just going to make all of your decisions for you. And you have to do whatever I tell you to do is the best decision, where to aim for your putts, what club to hit, all this stuff. You have to do it. And the guy said, okay, and he made this bet with his friends. And I ended up shooting like a 76 or something. <laughs> right. Just when I, a lot of that has to do with course management. Yeah. Like that's the biggest thing that 
Like if I hit it in the trees, I can make this miracle slice over this tree at the green and be 50 yards out or 20 yards out. Or I can punch it out, hit a five iron at the green. and I'm way more likely to get on the green and two putt make a bogey versus if I don't get out of the trees with this big slice, then I'm, I got to try back in the trees. Yeah, again, man. And you're going to end up with a triple and things like that. And you might hit that five iron close and make par, make a miracle 20 footer. Like you don't know. Right. And that kind of stuff. You shave if you really have someone doing that for you. Like you'll shave five strokes off your game immediately just doing just, that. It's just crazy. make it easier for yourself. Yeah, well, y- yeah. your future strokes. You ideal. get stressed make- out when you hit a bad shot and you need to fix it right then. But that's not the time to fix it. The time to fix it is on the next hole. Make yeah. a birdie on the next hole. If you get in trouble, get out of trouble with the least amount of strokes. Right. Realistically, but yeah. that's not how people think about it. No. So, so I'm guilty of it's that. It's like, I got to put this in the hole now. Yeah, I got to get well, you're it you're 350 out, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm in these trees. I got to hit this big sweeping hook over top of these trees just to be close to the green so I can get up and down. It's like, All right. I mean, that's never going to happen. You, If you were that good, you wouldn't have hit it in the trees in the first place. Right. So if you could hit that <laughs> shot you're, you're talking about hitting. That's you wouldn't awesome. Have, yeah. So it's funny. I, uh, I came into the summer carrying a plus one handicap and then left the summer with one or two handicaps I st- kind of slowed down I played a few qualifiers and didn't do very well and that kind of shot my confidence so I stopped playing man you gotta get back on it yeah well they weren't horrible but I didn't make the tournaments that I was trying to qualify for and looking back I immediately went well I could have saved a stroke here I could have saved a stroke there and that's the kind of fourth the foresight you have to have with that game my biggest problem is that I have I have really bad anxiety that I deal with a lot and so my brain never stops and so the what you're you're not supposed to think about your swing while you're swinging because that's impossible. Right. That's the reason that you're if you screw up. It's yeah. the same reason that if you walk a if you walk a, a balance beam that's a foot off the ground, you can do it with no problem. But if you put it forty feet in the air with no net, you're gonna fall off. Right. But it's the same thing. Right. You just can't you're thinking about every mechanical movement. Right. And so you can't swing that way. You can't go, okay, hit this checkpoint, hit this checkpoint. Okay, right. now count to here and then do you can't do that. It's impossible. So my biggest problem is when I start playing bad, I start doing that. I start my swing naturally is good. And I know that. But when I hit a bad drive, I go, okay, it's a bad drive, I'll save it. If I hit another bad drive on the next hole, I'm just completely fucked <laughs> for the whole round. For the rest of the round, because then I start going, okay, I did it twice. Now something's happening, and I don't know what it is, but based on the movement, based on this feeling, it's probably this. So then on the next one, I'll try this, and then it's going over here, <laughs> and then I don't, and then I'm completely screwed. And You're I'm done. not, yeah. and I'm not shooting, you know, I'm not shooting bad scores, but I'm not shooting good scores. I'm, I'm eliminating the opportunity to make birdies at that point, and right. so I'm not. And I'm that's not, what you need to get to where you want. So to you be. have to, yeah, you have to do that. You have to averaging. My plus one handicap meant that I was averaging even par to one, maybe two over averaging. That's what a a plus, whatever your handicap is, you're supposed to average shooting three, uh, three shots above that. So if you're a 15 handicap on a par 72 course, you should be shooting around a hundred or around. Yeah. Or around, uh, no, that's not, that's bad math around 90 or or mid nineties, low nineties. Right. That's what you should be shooting. 91 right essentially and so i wasn't shooting bad scores in these in these qualifiers but the people that were going were under par right into the tournaments and so i'm i'm when i had a bad drive i'm not gonna make a birdie on that hole 
when I should have, and then I'm screwed. And so that's that's where I got messed up. And then you start thinking about your swing. You start thinking about all this stuff. You can't yeah. do that. So I got. And then I you got, start playing outside your game. Trying start, to yeah. Start trying to force shots to work and force turns and force things. And and I yeah I would get I would get shot. And that's the mental side of the game is is my biggest enemy because my swing naturally is is a good swing. I don't think there's a sport out there that it's maybe pitching in baseball or something that is as mentally taxing. Yeah. I don't think so. <clears throat> the, uh, this is some statistic that I read somewhere is that in the in a game of golf, average game of golf, four hours is reasonable yeah. conservatively. The club is actually touching the ball for like one tenth of a second total, right? In the entire round of golf, right. so the average golfer is hitting ninety to a hundred golf shots. Right. So you're talking about less than one second of physical contact that you have with the ball, right? And rest in of it's four just... hours. Your head and screwing yourself it's up. It's crazy how mental and, and how strong-willed you have to be. To you know, I when I was playing tournaments a lot, playing the the better tournaments, you have you ask people or, or people will talk about what they do. Some people count their steps. You hit a shot and then you immediately start counting your steps till the next time that you start thinking about your next shot. You're just counting steps, right. walking down to the fairway. To keep your mind off of everything. You're not thinking about anything, but just counting your steps. Yeah, because as soon as you start thinking about what you need to do or how well you're doing. Anything. And you're screwed. Yeah, that's that's the testament of a good caddy as well, where they'll immediately take your mind off of whatever just happened until it's time to think. You only need about 20 seconds mm-hmm. to think about the shot. You, you're analyzing it as you're walking up to it. You pick your club. You pick the shot you want to hit, and then you just do it. Right. It's like with... Like you, you hear about boxers and, and martial arts and things like that. You have to react. You can't think, if this guy throws his hand here, I'm going to counter and I'm going to do this. And you, that doesn't happen in real time. Yeah. So you have to know that if this hand comes at you, your brain reacts to do this. Right. And things like that. And in martial arts and things, that's yeah. really... So you have to do it a million times to where it becomes second nature. Yeah. To where if this... Even if you're just walking down the street, if you see something here, you just... You don't right. even realize that you're reacting that way. Yeah. And that's how you have to be with your golf swing. Yeah. You have to just know, here's the shot I want to hit. I know how to hit it. I'm going to take a couple rehearsal swings. And then I'm just going to do it. I know the really good games of uh, bowling that I've done. That's like you—you you never look up at the scoreboard, and you know, no. and you. I—I I think the times is whenever I've had like a couple beers on the table that I could go and go walk. I would go walk halfway down the bowling alley to go watch a baseball game or a football game. Right. So just to get my mind off of what was going on, and then come back and just go through my routine and get it done. Yeah. And. That's the routine is, is where it's at. It gets you focused and you get into that, that temporary flow state and you're not thinking about anything. Time slows down and everything gets quieter and all that stuff. That's the, the, the most uh, craziest moment for me is whenever I'm in the backswing and then all those thoughts that you're not supposed to be thinking about come in. <laughs> And you're like, no, don't think about this. Don't think yeah, about it. no, yeah. no, no. Yeah, yeah. And then you throw it, and it goes in the gutter. Yeah. Or what, you know, totally shot. Yeah, yeah. You and bowled. you know, you know, you screwed it up. You you're know? a really good bowler. Uh, it used to be. You bowled multiple 300 games, haven't you? Yeah, I guess that counts. That's pretty. That counts as being pretty good. Yeah, I can't I, break 100. I guess. Um, and bowling, unlike, well, I guess like golf, you know, you have the pro tees. Right. Right. It makes it infinitely more difficult. Right. Uh, 
where the oil patterns on all the lanes, it's uh, it's made to that if you just go to any bowling alley, it's made so that you can shoot a high score. Mm-hmm. You can do well, like like it'll grip and go straight. Yeah, they have less oil on the sides near the gutter, so mm-hmm. if you're going too far towards the gutter, your ball will hook mm-hmm. towards the pins. Right. So that's why you can see. Uh, then the pro shot, they'll put oil on the edges. So Uh if you miss your balls going in the gutter or it won't grab in time. Right. So when you see pros shoot two Oh five, you're like, Oh, well I did that at the bowling alley the other day. It's like you didn't because, and it's about a 30 pin difference. Yeah. So whereas I was averaging two ten ish, you know, give or take that, you know, it's one ninety, one eighty. So when I'm shooting on mm-hmm. a pro pattern. Right. And where they're averaging 235. Right. On a pro pattern. Right. So they'd be averaging 260, almost, yeah. 270, which is getting nine strikes every game yeah. in a row. Yeah. Just find that spot, hit it every time. Yeah. Bowling has always been fascinating to me for whatever reason. It's kind of like horseshoes, I guess, to I, where you, you have to hit like a spot. Yeah. A tiny, and tiny it's a spot. Very, you're doing it a lot. It's very repetitive. Yeah, I enjoy it. I'm I'm not very good at it, so I don't take it very seriously, and I think that's probably why I enjoy it so much. Because I'm there, you go. I'm a really competitive person by nature, and so it, when I do something I'm not very good at, I I don't feel like I have fun. to be yeah. competitive. Oh, well, yeah, okay. it's fun because I don't have to be competitive because okay. I'm not worried about it. Unless it's something I want to get better at, then I get mad or whatever. But otherwise, that's just I'm just I'm like, flirting with that with golf. Like, yeah, because I know as soon as You're, I make that turn, like as soon as I yeah. make that decision, you'll hate it. I want to get, I will just hate myself. Yeah, I get until I get to where I want to be. I st- I start questioning my everything about my personality and my life when I have a bad round of golf. Like I question, right. I I question everything. Like why am I here? Like what's right. the meaning? <laughs> like what's the meaning of life? Like. <laughs> But I play bad and I can't turn it off. And I wish that I could because I play with people who don't feel that way. Most of the time, I very rarely play with someone who takes it as seriously as that. Right. Because most of the people haven't ever tried to pursue it as a career like I did. Right. And unsuccessfully, I'll add to that. And so I like if I'm having a bad round or if I'm going to shoot in the 80s and I'm like, I'm realizing it about 10 holes in, like there's nothing I can do about it. I get I try not to, but I get I get upset. Right. I remember there was one round I did. I was playing with some friends. I used to do an every an every Monday round here in Fort Worth, and I was I was on a, a green. I was on like the fifth hole, and I had already three putted like three times, and I three putted this green, and those were my bogey. I hit every green, but I three I was three over because I three putted three times, and I was so mad at myself that I was the first one to put out of a fivesome and I just grabbed my ball and walked off and walked to the next tee and just stood there waiting on him. And uh, I remember as they all kind of pulled up, I was like gathering myself. So I wasn't going to yell at somebody cause that's right. what I wanted to do. And um, one of the guys in the group was like, what are we trying to qualify for the open over here? <laughs> and I was like, no man, just let me be mad. Just don't <laughs> like, you're going to make it worse. Just let me be upset. That's funny. I, there was a time, like my goal with bowling is I've been, I had been doing it or still it's in the past. Uh, I started whenever I was six. So I wanted to bowl 300. That was the goal. Yeah. And so whenever I did it the first time, like I had a lot of little lucky bounces right. and things go my way. Like the last ball went 
on the other side of the head pin and it, and it i was like i was just hit. so happy that it happened you know <laughs> you but then the i was button. like you know that doesn't really count you know like it right because it wasn't lucky. i guess i got lucky and yeah. i wanted to prove that it wasn't a fluke so i i really buckled down and uh and then the next 300 i got it was the way i wanted it i, I may have had one lucky hit yeah out of you know 13 or whatever, yeah. 12 and and it was after that i don't have that monkey on my, like there's one more thing you can do in bowling that's harder to do than a 300 which is bowl an 800 series so out of three games mm-hmm. bowl 800 pins and then you average 266 a game yeah. which is that's a lot way more difficult than just bowling it's not a fluke at that point yeah <laughs> that's, not, and that's I, not luck and i have no desire to do that right. so bowling has now since became like fun again yeah that's it's, good it's fun because there there are pro bowlers but they're they don't make any money yeah and there's not a living to be had there so yeah. there's no desire to get to that next level yeah whenever i see that on tv i turn it off bowling yeah it's nap it's nap I can't. stuff man yeah I can't, I can't watch it on tv people say that about golf though like how can you sit there and watch that and it's like i'm like i have adrenaline rushes when i'm watching golf well, on tv you know what's going on yeah that's the other side of it yeah it's I'm like in, i know what's going head. on yeah I, I know that this guy is working this oil pattern down this way, this yeah. way, so it screws up the other guy that's bowling next to him. Right. Like, there's, really? a, there's, there's a lot of defensive patterns. Now, there's tactics you can take. Interesting. So if somebody's bowling outside, like he's more doing like a straight and then hooking in, this guy can throw this big gigantic hook, and it makes it eats up the oil hmm. at this one spot and screws this guy up. Hmm. So this guy now has to adjust to what he's doing. Really. And it's. It's normally the guy who's on the inside does better yeah. because you get more of a buffer because this guy's cleaning up the oil. So now you can bump off that. I had no idea that that was it's, a thing. It, so it becomes that way. And you're nobody ever talks about like in the leagues and stuff you do around here. But I'm constantly thinking about that. Yeah. And I think the people who do really well are paying attention to everybody and where they're bowling. Yeah. So they can map out their best way to bowl. Interesting. It's, it be, does become that way. So if you see some, I've done this in the state tournament where you see somebody who's bowling, having a great game, and then you find exactly where they're lining up and throw over the exact same spot because it will eat up the oil. You know it's going to break down quicker, and he may have not accounted for that. Right. You're going to throw him off. And you're going to start bowling better because he, <laughs> he has the, right. The, right, the right spot. Crazy. He, he found it before you. My best year of bowling that I ever had was uh, when I was 19 or so. I broke my right wrist and um, punching somebody with way with, to go, Chris. With gloves on, and uh, oh, oh, that makes it better. It was it was sanctioned. It was sanctioned. It wasn't a, it wasn't oh, okay. a bar fight. And uh, right, hold on, let me put on my glove first. Yeah, yeah, you're about to get it. <laughs> and uh, I broke my right arm, my right wrist. And uh, I bowled my left hand, and I bowled better for those three or four months that I had cast on. Yeah, than I have ever bowled in and my life. Maybe you weren't probably trying as hard because you're not as coordinated. I don't know. You know, the nice and easy. Swing. I played pool better, also that way. Left-handed. Yeah. Maybe I, I'm secretly left-handed, and I don't know it. I don't know. I think there's something to that. 
I, there's I a was, thing when I was in college. Let me interrupt you to say this to that. When I was in college, there I was studying architecture. And so my first year was all delineation and drawing and, and mapping out realistic shadowing and, and all kinds of uh, drawing stuff. Right. So I learned how to draw fairly well that year. But one of the things that the first few weeks in this delineation class that we had, the guy would have us do quick sketches for the first like half hour of the class. He would put up a picture for five minutes and you would make a sketch of it and then he would change it and make a sketch of that. And you try to do as much of it as detail as you can in this picture. And then he would grade them like they were like you had all night to do them. Like wow. he would grade them harshly. Yeah. And uh, so it made you really worry about like what things are important to get. Like I can I can draw these lines here and they will impose this shadow without spending the time to make this shadow. Right. Things like that. And so one of them one day he had us do one of the drawings. And it wasn't a picture on the wall. It was it was take your left hand, if you're right-handed, take your left hand and kind of put it on the table like this and draw it from your perspective. Huh. And then take your right hand and put it on the table and draw your right hand with your left hand. Huh. And your left-handed drawing is better. It comes out better for really? like 90% of the people. They do that the first time because you have no idea what you're doing. And so there's no preconceived notion of, of drawing this line. And you're, thinking, you're not thinking about... You're th- you're thinking more about how you're doing it and the lines come out better and right. the perspective comes out better. And it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. I still have it somewhere that's, that's in insane. this portfolio. And then you put, do them right next to each other. So it looks like your two hands are like on the table next to each other. It was crazy. That's insane. It was crazy. There's gotta be something to that. And he, he had this whole explanation for it. That was 12 hmm. years ago. So I don't really remember right. too much about it, but it that's pretty, cool. It was pretty wild. So I don't know. There's that. It's a, uh... Did you end up graduating from? No. no, no. I went to Texas Tech and for a little while, and then I came back to Denton, where I went to high school. Mm-hmm. And then I would, I did some uh, local community college, finished up all my basics, and then I was going to go to UNT to to finish, and then I just never did. I started touring and playing shows and making a living, and then I went. Well, I'm not going to. I didn't want to be an architect. I was working as an architect. You don't have to be. Uh, you don't have to have a degree to be an architect. You call yourself a residential designer. Okay. You can't be licensed architect without a degree, but you can do the work mm-hmm. if you know how. My brother is an architect. He's been an architect my whole uh, cognitive life. Right. And uh, he gave me AutoCAD when I was in high school, taught me how to use it. And so I would just mess around and do stuff and design stuff. And my dad built houses, so I knew how to do that. And so when I got to college, I thought kind of thought that was what I was supposed to do. So I was studying uh, architecture and then minoring in psychology because I was really interested in psychology. Right. <clears throat> and I kind of thought I was supposed to do architecture because that's what everyone else in my family did. But I really liked psychology. So I had like, I took like 15 hours for the first like two years, every semester, which was horrible. And I worked 30 hours a week. It was pretty awful. I mean, it was enjoyable, right. but it was crazy. It was a crazy schedule for an 18, 19 year old. Right. And, uh, so you don't so you don't have to have a degree to do that. So mm-hmm. I when I moved back to DFW, I lived in Denton and I got a job as an architect for a swimming pool company and uh well, we we did swimming pool landscape, outdoor like pool houses and and I did some some side work for my dad, and my brother designing, you know, rebuilds and redesigns and stuff like that. That's I cool. did that for several years. 
So that's cool. But I never got a degree. Um, I've toyed around with doing what you're doing and just getting anything, just having it. I've been asking a lot of people that have gotten them, and you know, you know, whether they're forty or fifty or I saw my best friend from growing up. Uh, I saw him yesterday. He came over. We had dinner, and uh, I've been all asked the same question. It's like if you could go back and get a degree in something else, would you? And if so, what would it be? And uh, find a lot of them. They they say it doesn't matter as much, but and some of them want to change it. And like this one, the lawyer, and she would like to be a lawyer still, but just do pro bono work and not do anything for right. You know anybody else? And I I was just trying to see if people, first I did it for the marketplace. Like where is there a good job? You know, and, but then now I'm like, what do I like? What, what do I find fascinating? Yeah. And so space is very fascinating, but there's a lot of time that comes with that and a lot of math. Yeah. A lot of math. You're in a better place <clears throat> mentally and in, in life. You're a lot more stable and you're a lot more. Yeah, just got a house. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. You're a lot more. You're a lot more like that than you were when you were 18, or than anyone right. was when you're 18. I think it's really, really illogical to ask an 18 year old what they want to do for the rest of their life. Yeah, because you're so not too. even fully developed or grown up. You're right. you're still learning about yourself, and you've been you've never been alone, so you don't know how that changes everything. Right. You know what I mean? I think it's really illogical to ask a teenager, a senior in high school, to decide what to spend fifty thousand dollars on. To just to figure out what you want to do for the rest of your life, a lot of people don't even use their degrees. Well, don't a lot of European families like send their kids right out of high school on like backpacking adventures yeah. and stuff? Take two years. I think that's yeah, that's incredible. My sister did that. Uh, my sister's an orthopedic surgeon uh, now. She's four years older than me, and uh, she got she did her undergrad biology undergrad in four years at TCU here in town. Oh wow, and. She graduated high school at 17, a year early, got a full ride scholarship to play volleyball at TCU, graduated in four years with a, with a 4.0 GPA in biology, and then took a year off before she went to med school. Hmm. And she, I think that's the case for, for the most part. My mom's going to listen and tell me whether or not that's right. But that's the way I understood it. And then she kind of zoned in and figured out like, okay, like where I'm ready. And then, yeah. she, and then she did the eight-year, ten-year process of becoming a doctor. Yeah, That's, which it is really long. I think expensive. you have to, you have to find yourself. Yeah. If you don't, then you have too many people going through like midlife crisis because they never did. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's, I think also the difference in doing what we do for a living versus doing a job that you have to do just to make money mm -hmm. in that I'm very fulfilled by my career, whether or not I, I'm wealthy, which I'm not, but whether right. or not I ever become wealthy, I'm very fulfilled by my career because I'm satisfying my artistic expression. I'm doing it on my own terms. I've I've made whatever has happened for me, all the cool stuff that I've gotten to do, mm -hmm. I made that happen for myself. Right. And that's cool. And I know who I am and I, all of that. And I think you're exactly right. People fall into this. They turn 50 and they go, well, I never got to do this. I'm going to do it now. And it's like, well, you can't really do that now. Right. You know, so you go buy a Corvette or whatever. Yeah. I. <laughs> or you trade your wife in for a younger model. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I'm watching. Yeah. I've been watching Mad Men again. Okay. And so I'm. 
Michelle loves that. It's awesome. I'm, I watched it before the whole thing, and I'm watching it again. Maybe I need to give it another it's try. Awesome. I, I it's, really like it. It's really slow, isn't it? It's slow for the first half of the first season. They're kind of developed. There's a lot of development of yeah. characters, and the episodes are all an hour long, and it's just some time to put in. But you have yeah. to kind of put. What I like about it, I think, it the most is you have to put yourself in that time because it starts in 1960. Yeah, and that's and everybody's what, smoking everywhere. And what they were, what just looking at just how people dressed and how people acted and the way they spoke to each other, mm-hmm. it's like a totally different culture than what we have now. Oh, completely. Like I know one of the biggest things I noticed is like when the guy came home from work, the wife was still in all the makeup. Yeah, and like and had a meal already prepared. Ready. I'm like, yeah, that is weird. And don't. Man. Yeah. It's like be at home. Like you're at home. Be relaxed. Well, that's well, that was her job. Right. She was a housewife, and right. she she did what she did. She took care of the kids during the day, and then she made herself up so the husband would come home to a pleasant wife and to a cooked meal and walk in and get a drink and whatever. And that is a totally different culture. I uh, I really like it as a show. Just it's, I feel like it's a really good time time stamp of what that was like. Right. I don't know, obviously, but right. I, it it all seems very realistic to yeah. me. And it's dark. A lot. It gets darker and darker as the seasons go on, mm-hmm. and, and and so that's its own thing. But I just, I don't know. I really enjoy it. I don't know. How I go yeah. Off. No. Uh, I don't remember how we got off on this topic. No, we. I don't either. <clears throat> but it's a good show. So if you haven't it's seen a, it, it, go watch a, it. Yeah, uh, uh, we watch. We're rewatching Sons of Anarchy. Yeah, I, that, that I was into that. Sick man. I was into Sons of Anarchy when it was on live the first couple of seasons, and I was the only one of my friends that was watching it. I didn't I, have anyone to talk about it to until about season four. Everyone went, "Oh man, I'm binge watching Sons of Anarchy," and I'm like, "Yeah, I know. I've been watching it for four years." <laughs> right. Like, let's talk about it now. I uh, yeah, I, I waited to after it was over, I guess, and it was nice because I didn't I didn't have to worry about. Anyway, spoiling yeah. it because I would see it in passing and not know what the hell it meant. Right. So it didn't uh, mean anything. Show. And we're watching it for the second time. And I was like, man, I can't. Believe- I forgot how messed up this show gets. Yeah. It it's gets really messed up. It gets real dark. Man. It does. I just binge watched The Wire and uh, The Sopranos. Heard, heard good things. Never seen either one of them before. And I this year, I binge watched both of them. And they are both awesome. I watched. I was more impressed with The Wire than The Sopranos. And here's the thing about The Sopranos is that it was in the early 2000s, and that development of story and killing off main characters, mm-hmm. and gratuitous sex and drugs and murder and violent graphic showing graphic violent murders right. and prostitution and whatever that had never been done before. They were the so first, this show yeah. was super groundbreaking. But I didn't watch it back then. I watched it this year. Right. And so that's all been done tenfold since then right and so i was watching it and everyone kept telling me how just mind-blowingly amazing this show was and i didn't really get that i liked it as a story but then i i didn't realize all of all of that what i just like said it was the first yeah yeah until about towards the end of it i think i was in the last season when i went okay let me really objectively think about this right this was all brand this was like they were really taking a chance and this show is so popular because of that right that when they were filming the last season they would film three completely different scenes per scene so the actors didn't even know what was happening and wow. they didn't know which version of the scene they were going to put in wow the, the director and the writers knew right but but the, the, the actors the, the didn't act, even so know. the actors if they were at home talking with their wife they couldn't go I have no fucking clue what's happening on this show I don't know I'm either going to be dead tomorrow yeah. or I'm going to be alive yeah <laughs> so and I thought that that like that's a testament to how popular that show was like the actors weren't even allowed to right. know the trajectory of their own character 
Like it was crazy, but and I looking at it that way, it made a lot of sense. I really liked The Wire okay. a lot more. That show was I was hooked immediately okay. on that show. What they did, did you ever see True Detective? No. Okay, so that won't make sense. What they did is the first season, like here's a problem, we're going to solve it, and what it seemed like was the next season, here's a new problem, and then we're going to spend this season solving it. Right. But all of these characters you be were so good from the first season that when they started this problem, they started interjecting these old other characters in, and okay. then it became a story. So the second season really is where the whole story starts to, to make sense. Okay. Because there's no mention of any of these characters from the from the second season on in the first season. Right. And then all of a sudden, here's this new problem, and then all the old characters are there, and then they start adding more stuff in. And then here's the set story. By the end of the second season, they caught their stride, and then it's, it's so good. Yeah. It's I've so heard, good. I've heard man. that it's really, really I good. I love it. And it's from the same era. It's from the early 2000s. And so there's a lot of technology that they're talking about, like, it was the advent of uh, burner phones, drug dealers okay. using yeah. burner phones. Yeah. And like the first couple of seasons, that wasn't even a thing because that didn't even exist. That wasn't a thing. Right. And then they, they figure out about burner phones and then going and, and buying them here and buying them there and all this stuff. And they're talking about, they make one phone call and throw it in a gutter. That's fine. Break the battery out of it and throw it in a gutter so you couldn't trace it and stuff like that. Right. This is an awesome show. I really enjoyed it. I have to check it out. Is it on Hulu it's or on HBO? It's, I don't know if it's okay. on Hulu. I know through Amazon Prime you can buy like a fifteen dollar prescription uh, prescription prescription to, to HBO. HBO. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you can get HBO now for fifteen bucks a month. But don't That's you have what... to have a cable provider? No. no, I I use Apple TV and I pay fifteen to sixteen dollars a month for app for HBO now. Okay, and it's an app on my Apple TV. I pay for Netflix and HBO. That's all I pay for. We we just have Netflix. We yeah. got rid of cable. Mm. Yeah, I did years ago. Got rid of cable. So it's awesome. I would spend so much time in front of the TV just staring at it, or just wasting your time looking for something to watch. Yeah, hours and out of finding something. Thousand yeah, yeah. channels. There's nothing. Yeah, just flipping. Yeah, I'm really gonna miss those History Channel documentaries on <laughs> Bigfoot. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw one of those, and they had a dude on there, and his. You know how they put the name and then their title under it? Yeah. One of them said it was this dude's name, and it said Sasquatch Expert. I thought that was the coolest thing. It's like, you don't even know this exists. How can Sas- you be an expert on this thing? Sas- it doesn't even, that's horrible. Like, uh, but he was. He was the guy. They the went Sasquatch to him. expert. He was the guy. When anyone had a question about Sasquatch facts, he was the expert. Facts. Well, he was an expert. Man. He knew everything there is to know about him. Yeah. I, I was guess. listening to, uh, or I wasn't listening. I was told, do you ever listen to Art Bell? Coast Uh-oh. to Coast AM. When mm-hmm. you're driving home from gigs, find Coast to Coast AM. It's syndicated nationally everywhere. Okay. And there's this guy named Art Bell, and he's got this radio show, and he talks about supernatural stuff. It comes on at like midnight. Right. And uh, I always listen to it on the way home from gigs. And there's because a guy, it's funny? Or it's it's funny because <laughs> the people are crazy. Oh, yeah. They'll call in talking about how they're... Like they have a personal relationship with these aliens who keep abducting them and people like that. Right. And it's awesome. And he totally like gives, lends them credence and doesn't make fun of them and doesn't, I don't know if he even believes it or not, but he, that's like, that's the people that he attracts. Right. I was told about one of them. I didn't get to hear it, but I was told about this one guy who speaking of Sasquatches that he lives up in like Portland, Oregon or somewhere. And, uh, he also was a Sasquatch expert, okay. but his, his, the reason that we can't find Sasquatches and, and Bigfoots is because they're interdimensional and they don't live in our dimension. Oh, they just visit. 
And so you that's s- new. So you see them, and you get these glimpses of them, but then you can't find them because they slip back into their own dimension. Okay, that's they slip back into their own dimension. Yeah, because they're they're interdimensional beings. That's that's funny. What if it was true? It, but <laughs> you don't know. You, you don't yeah, know that it's not. You, you okay? You you can't. One of my favorite quotes is you can't claim something to be true with no evidence because it can be dismissed as untrue without evidence. There's no need to make that. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm not a religious person, but we don't have to go there either. But Sasquatches could be interdimensional. You don't know. Right. I mean, I think it's, it's crazy. Like the whole people think about black holes and that maybe being like a loophole to other parts of space and yeah. String theory. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I'm way into that kind of stuff. It's it's a lot of fun to think about. It is fun to think about. It's fun to think about and take the information and formulate your own opinion and then not argue with other people about it. Right. Because <laughs> this never goes anywhere. Yeah, don't don't ever bring it up to your grandparents because they <laughs> they think you're talking no. crazy stuff. Like my, my grandparents, they were like, I, I brought up that the Andromeda Galaxy is actually on a collision course with the Milky Way. Uh-huh. And it's going to be like... 40 million years or something before right. it actually starts touching and there's actually so much space in between each star in the galaxy that probably none of them would touch just pass right through y- yeah yeah it would just be a nice light show over yeah. a couple hundred billion years or whatever <laughs> and and they're like man it sounds like you sound like that crazy guy in town talking about hillary's a cyborg you know like i'm like <laughs> she's a what? reptilian she's like not that, a cyborg. that's like no this is proven yeah thing yeah. like this well, is happening that's the beauty you know, of facts is that you right? they're true whether you believe them or not right that's you when you argue with someone who you state a fact and they go that's well that's your opinion you go well right whether or not you believe it that's that's real that's the thing yeah it's crazy man it is crazy. I love that kind of stuff. I love just pondering. I like making myself feel insignificant by pondering the vastness of space. Oh my gosh! Uh, I that's, really and I take solace in that kind of stuff. I I love, like I think one of the biggest moments in my life was uh, watching Cosmos. Yeah, because that, that show comes show. on and it's talking about space and not just how big it is, but like how old it is. Yeah, and how how vast it is yeah, and just have this like overwhelming. Oh, I think a lot of people get this in church whenever they have like, uh, feel the power of the Holy spirit thing. And it's like a crazy episode. Like it was just like you sink deeper into your body and you're just like, Whoa, man, I'm so, and you could be completely sober and have these experiences and you're just like, wow, I am tiny. And it puts a lot of things into perspective. It does, and that's kind of what led me to start going back to school. Yeah, it's like so, you know, the better for betterment of my kids over, over time. Yeah, it puts a lot of things like that into perspective, and petty, petty jealousies and petty quarrels become much more insignificant. Yeah, when you start really analyzing your own mortality, it, it's supposed to be mentally. Um, a good exercise for your for your brain to ponder your own mortality. It happens psychologists, whether I want it to or not. Psychologists say that that that's good for you to do because it 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 just kind of it it puts your feet back on the ground. Yeah. For a minute. I'll 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 hear something and it'll trigger it and I'll just be like, whoa. Yeah. 
All right. Like a hundred years from now, I won't be here and and nobody that's on the earth will. Right. Like that's a real thing. You think about that and you go, okay, then what, what are we fighting about? You know know what? My, um, I'm not a hippie, but it sounds like one of my favorite quotes is, uh, I can't, it was some astrophysicist or biologist or somebody. And he was talking about because of evolution and, and it's almost like a, the earth is like 4.5 billion years old or whatever. And the sun's going to... Depending on who you ask. Right. And the sun's going to go out in about the same amount of time. So four and a half billion years from now, the sun's going to go out. And so theoretically, the creatures or whatever is watching the sun burn out will be genetically different from us as we are from bacteria. And that's just like... Isn't that crazy? Crazy. Not necessarily that much more advanced, you know? Just different. It could revert back to bacteria by that time. Right. Because the environment would be so hostile. Sure. But it's it's crazy to think well, about. Well, now that Donald Trump is president, you know? <laughs> you said you weren't going to bring this up. <laughs> I was just kidding. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it either. Good. Man, I I made a post on Facebook. Just I th- thought it was a funny post. Man, it just went yeah insane. You can't. I'm you just can't. I'm so done with that. I've avoided politics and religion on Facebook. I I got I did really well for like two 100%. years. I just I can't. I won't do it. I refuse to do it. I refuse to get into arguments. I also imposed that as a rule in my van when we were traveling with my band. We talk about we can talk about anything anything under the sun except religion and politics. Yeah, we will not because no. Br- Religion and politics are exactly like music in that it's it's 100% personally objective. Right. So no two people experiencing the same thing are going to perceive that thing the same way. Right. It's never going to happen. There are no two people in history who feel the exact same way about religion or politics or music. Right. And probably other things. And so you could get the two best of friends and we had very good rapport and relationships in my band for the most part all yeah. the time. And when we would travel, we didn't get into these conversations because when we did, before I imposed this rule, people would fight and we'd be on the road for two or three weeks and right. people would be mad at each other. Right. It doesn't work. No. Because what happens in these conversations is that you and I are arguing about religion, say. I have my version of it. You have your version of it. I'm not interested. This is human nature. I'm not going to be interested in what you think. I'm going to be interested in proving you wrong and making you think what I think and vice versa. So we're not having an argument. We're not having a conversation. We're having an argument. We're not having a debate. We're having an argument. Those are two completely different things. And so it it just never goes anywhere because I'm not listening to anything you're saying and thinking about it and internalizing it and going, okay, well, what if that's the case? I'm just going, well, you say that and I go, well, here's five reasons why that's wrong and you're stupid because you think that. Right. (laughs) How could you possibly think that? Right. Come think what I think and you think the same thing about what I say. Right. It just doesn't fucking work. It doesn't work at all. There's no sense in doing that and watching these inflammatory Facebook posts and a thousand comments and they just turn into insults. Like yeah. people start stating what they think are facts, which generally aren't. And then it just degrades into just calling each other names. Right. And it's so stupid. Every, it's every so time. child. Every it, time. It gets it's so that. childish. I engaged in one, one time. I never did it again. This was years ago. And this girl was so stupid. And I won't even talk about what we were talking about. 
Right. But she said something to the effect of, well, I don't believe in atoms because I can't see them. And I said, but that's something that can be proven. Right. Like, physically a hundred out of a hundred times a million out of a million times proven that that exists right that's like saying i walk out my front door and i don't believe that africa exists because i can't see it right right and she just went well but i know africa exists and i was like oh my god this is the stupidest conversation (laughs) i've ever been a part of like that was that was like 15 messages into our conversation right and she was just saying the dumbest things and i just went you're you're gonna procreate is what's gonna happen? And more than you, yeah, more Way, than I am. Yeah. And and then those and, kids and, are gonna think that and whatever. Like and it like I don't know. It was really frustrating. So I just choose not to do that. And it's funny. People will ask me my opinion on stuff. I don't know anything about politics. I know I know enough to have my own opinion, but it's not a very good opinion. It's not a right. very educated opinion because that's something I'm not very interested in. And I probably should be more than I am. And I'm not saying that's the right way to be, but that's what I think. I, I just bores me. I can't. I can't do it. And people will ask me my opinion as if they genuinely want to know what I think because they're looking for something to think. And they I don't. go, no. No, they do not. Go look, go do some research. Like, why are you asking me what I think? You're just going to take what I say and just regurgitate that into your own opinion? No. That's a horrible way to go through life. Like, how could you possibly do that? You wouldn't do that with anything else. No. Like, you wouldn't do that with religion. Like, well, what do you think? Oh, I'm just going to think that. Like, <laughs> you would never do that. Right. That sounds good. It's yeah. weird, and and I just, celebrities that that use their platform to do that. I I have a mixed opinion about it because some of them are very knowledgeable and some of them aren't. And the ones that aren't are so much louder than the ones that are. Right. And it drives me crazy when you hear someone take this soapbox and they're saying obviously wrong things, mm-hmm. and you just go and you just you you wonder how many million people are going to hear these people talk and then how many million of out of those people are going to take what they said as gospel and go and then you're going this person is just blatantly spreading lies right there's it's no like, no accountability no there's no accountability and there's no one standing in front of them to check them you get these it takes too long you get these videos by the, by the time you go and find out what it, what is true Somebody's already spouted off and on it, another hundred things. And it doesn't matter because it you doesn't. can find out what's true and you can present that to people. And if they don't agree with your with the facts and the truth, they'll just go, well, that's, well, that's your opinion. That's your opinion. <laughs> yeah. And it's there, you get to a point to where somebody's opinion is the equivalent of like a stated fact from an expert. You know what I mean? Yeah. And some shit that they made up. Yeah. And that's... It's not the way it should not, work. No, it's not the way it should work, but that's the way it is, does work. I was talking about this same thing with Luke yesterday about social media and the advent of social media and how now everyone has an equal voice. Yeah. From celebrity to nobody. Everyone has the same equal platform mm-hmm. to put their opinion on, but you can just spout random shit and, it doesn't and, mean, it's, and it's unchecked. doesn't mean celebrity voices are anymore. I don't feel like they're... Well, they just have they're a, more qualified. No, but, but they, 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 they've been reach. they've been told they they probably have a publicist right. or they used to have a publicist. I'm like, eh, don't say that. Right. Don't don't do this. And they have the restraint. Whereas people who've never had that platform or don't sure. have 
the support group behind them yeah. could just burn bridges at will. Yeah. Or you can make a YouTube video about here's all the reasons that dinosaurs never existed and it's an Illuminati scam to make you think whatever. And you can make a video and make facts that you say are facts. Right. And there's no one in the room while you're making this video to go, what the hell are you talking about? Right. That's That's idiotic. And then you can control who comments. And if someone comments that you're wrong, pff, delete. Right. And then you've got a thousand comments of people agreeing with you and saying how fascinating this video is. Right. And you're controlling. It becomes this echo chamber of of blatantly wrong things. Yeah. It's crazy. It's a crazy time we live in. It's, and it's crazy. And everyone has a voice and everyone wants to use it. And I don't think that's necessarily bad. But no one wants to think before they say anything. And no one, everyone needs attention. Everyone's seeking attention because we are. We have we have idolized celebrities for so long. We don't idolize smart people unless smart people become celebrities right. like Neil deGrasse yeah. Tyson. Nobody knew who he was before he got before he became a celebrity. Look at scientists portrayed in pop culture for the past yeah. hundred years. The, the mad that. mad scientists. Yeah, or that's they're, already, they're so yeah. nerdy that right. they can't function. Yeah, it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible mm. stigma. We're very lucky to have Neil. We right. are Neil and Bill Nye, yeah, and guys, Dude, that guy guys great. like that, yeah. <laughs> and he brought he brought functional science concepts to children, yeah. And I still remember Bill Nye from from being a kid, yeah. And like I I will like if I have kids, I'll show that to to my kids absolutely yeah. because it made things fun. It made things fun when I'm going to school making fun of that nerd, and then I'm going home learning about chemistry, right? Like, and then I go and then I met this crossroads in my brain of going, okay, well. That grows up to be that, and I like that, so maybe I like this. Right. Like, and then you like I don't know. There's there's so much to that, but yeah, we don't we don't idolize teachers. Aren't idolized. Man. Teachers don't make they don't make nearly enough money. They are not valued at the place that they should be valued mm-hmm. when they are one hundred percent, eighty percent responsible for for the upbringing of your children. They're around yeah. them more than you are. Yeah. And like and I, and you and they get paid less than a living wage that they have to go get a second job on the weekends. Right. It's crazy. And that's, you know, I, th- I think teaching is the highest calling. It's gotta I, be. I really do. It's be. gotta be, and especially younger children. It makes me appreciate the really good ones yeah. that, that I had yeah, throughout school. Absolutely. That probably could have gotten a better job somewhere, but taught because that's, they needed to help. They loved it. You know? Yeah. And especially to me teaching littler kids, because those kids are not only learning about the world and life, they're learning about social interaction and they're learning facts and they're doing all of that at once. And that's just overwhelming their tiny little brain on a daily basis. And if you are a person who has the the wherewithal to to handle that and to guide this child in a positive direction, those people, I mean, that's, that should be a six figure job without question. Yeah, man. And, and I love, I like the way there's there's some uh, you know, there's some strategies and a curriculum that are coming out to where the the child kind of dictates it a little bit to where like if the child's asking is today March or Tuesday and that means that they're ready to learn about the weeks and days and then so okay, they're so they're, then they're they're curious about that yeah, so and and it, and it promotes it promotes. <gasps> children to keep that curiosity yeah going you know and and learning about these things that you have to know is is a fun thing yeah and it's not mandated yeah. you know and there's a saying that or i think it's uh carl sagan he said that we're all born scientists until it's beaten out of us sure you know yeah. like a kid playing in the mud or yeah. 
doing the texture and all that stuff. And it's like, he's, what happens when I do this? Oh, I didn't like that. Yeah. Maybe I should do something different. And I, I was obsessed with archeology span as a kid because we had an empty lot next to our house when I was in late elementary school and middle school. And I would dig up mice bones or dig up things and I would make these excavations. I was obsessed with it as a kid and I got made fun of so much for that, that I didn't like it anymore. Yeah. No, it's like I was, I was 50, I was 12 years old, a hundred percent sure I was going to be an archeologist. Right. And then I, that got, and who knows, that got maybe, ridiculed maybe out of me. Whenever you decide to go back and yeah, get a degree, just get a degree in archaeology. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do anything with it. Yeah. At least I'll enjoy it. Right. Yeah. Something you've always wanted to do, yeah. you know, and I. Except for that I didn't like the Indiana Jones movie. Oh, that's not real. Right. Yeah, that's he's not. An archaeologist. Yeah, but that's not. <laughs> that's I only saw the first one. I didn't like it. Yeah. Sorry. More, more Sorry, fake. Everybody. More fake news. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Indiana Jones movie. Screwing your opinion. Uh, yeah, man. Like, I thought about, I'm obviously okay with not making a whole lot of money. So, what if becoming a school teacher might be a, a good good thing to do? Sure. You know, I, I love history and I love science. And making it relatable is, I, I will never forget uh, Mr. Sylvester in high school who did a U.S. history government class. And he made it a lot of fun. And it's like, we had to pass a bill. We had to come up with this bill yeah. and then pass it and get it approved in our class. And then we had to go take it to the next class over and get them to approve it. Yeah. And they would just rip it to shreds because it's fun yeah. to, you know, rip other kids' yeah. hopes, hopes and dreams to shreds. Yeah, that's what you do. So, so then you start, you know, trying to compromise with these kids outside of class and, like, have interaction with other people. And I was like, man, what a great teacher. <laughs> yeah. This isn't a coach yeah. that's forced to be – right be a teacher this is a guy who just loves history yeah government and you need more of that yeah i can i can think of on one hand the amount of teachers that i really feel like made a lasting impression on me Mm -hmm. through through my uh, schooling life and into college there was one professor that i had that really was nurturing to what i exactly wanted right and he cared and he would email me i didn't email him you know what i mean like and that I still remember that. It means a lot to me to this day. So I think that's important. I think those people need to be valued more. It's not a glamorous profession, and I think that's probably the biggest issue is that it's just it's not it's not rock star life. Yeah, but man, it's the only way you're gonna uh, fix a society that's that's yeah you know it, that's bombarded with so much information. Yeah, if, unless you teach them how to discern yeah. between you know yeah fact and fiction yeah it's i mean you're just gonna have a continual positive feedback loop yep yep echo chambers are dangerous for sure for that kind of stuff so i don't know there's a lot going on there's a lot going on in the world that that could be better but i think platforms like this and people like you and i and our circle of friends uh, I think this kind of stuff is powerful to yeah. get information out. It's not, there's no one controlling in this room and, and on my podcast, no one's controlling what we talk about. No right. one's controlling how we talk about it. And so you and I are, are more free thinkers and, and progressive type people and our, our friends are. are. Mm-hmm. And I think that this medium and, and Facebook live, no one's going to turn that off. You know what I mean? People are going to listen to it if they want to listen to it and they want to hear an objective opinion. And if we can make someone think about something 
that's the end goal. Make someone just have a have formulated a thought, formulate a well conceived thought about something. I think that's ultimately what what this is all about. This is what I wanted to do. I want to talk about stuff like this. Right. And I think that these platforms are. It's the wild west. The podcast world is the wild west. Yeah. There's there no is. producers. I, there's, there's no, no regulation. No at one all. listens. No one on this hosting website that I use listens to my podcast. They didn't approve it. They right. just took my money and they host it and they put yep. it online. And right. there it is. Anyone can listen to it all over the world. And I think that's really important. And getting information out and just being progressive thinkers. If someone comes in here and turns my entire philosophy and my world upside down, I welcome that. Right. Because I think that you have to welcome that. And I want that to happen. So I'm thrilled to have you here. I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Yeah. Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, man. dude. It's thanks for fun. being here. Do you have anything that you want to promote? I'm going to have this up in the next day or two. So uh, if you want to promote something. Uh, yeah, man. Uh, MichaelLeeBand.com and Michael Lee in the wartime limousine. And we're doing a New Year's Eve gig at the Witchhead. And look for us and many more shows to come in 2017. There you go. It's going to be a good year. All right, well, thanks for listening. You can check me out at chriswatsonband.com. Uh, I've got uh, some new stuff coming up next year. I'm going to get back out there with my own band as well. So maybe cool. we can start doing some stuff together. Yeah, that uh, would be fun. Yeah, so check me out and uh, check him out, michaelleeband.com. And thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>